house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Tonight we've taken a wonderful journey inside ourselves as we've identified with the people, stories and dreams created by others. We've come to understand the spirit of our nation, the essence of our freedom and the diversity of us as a people. It's been a great personal pleasure to have been part of this wonderful celebration. The 100 greatest snubs of all time. What a collection. Hello, I'm Roxy Hart. And I'm Velma Kelly. And welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz Film Institute presents 100 Years, 100 Snubs, the finale. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, you'll hear us talk about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy, but for this May miniseries, we're doing something a little different. Every week in May, we'll be looking back and choosing the 100 greatest Oscar snubs of all time, and we'll have special guests calling in to offer their snub submissions. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here as always with the other one who reached for the gun joe reed <laughs> hello um uh i don't know something clever from chicago i'm so my mind is so packed with all of the snubs that we're going to uh, get out here in this last installment i can't even think of a proper velma kelly line um uh cicero i guess is what yes, i say to you yes. is cicero that's all i have to say about that um we're already at the end, Chris. How? Where does the we time go? The where do the weeks go? I don't... Well, we've kind of recorded this somewhat, you know... It's all... Time has folded in. It is. Itself. It truly has. Much like in in honor of Dune, uh, Dune 2, uh, time Dune. has folded in on itself to uh, travel yeah. across the space and time to get us from uh, 100 snubs down to... Isn't that Oppenheimer, though? Like, surely Oppenheimer's going to have some time... Sure. Span Listen. Bullshit. Time folding in on itself, etc. Uh, uh, Killian Murphy revisits the uh, space library that Matthew McConaughey is stuck in at the end of Interstellar, and uh, that's the end of Oppenheimer. Spoiler. Exactly. Exactly. Spoiler. This morning, my voice has folded in on itself, so I'm <laughs> coming to you as a. Uh, a, a very baritone. Uh, I should have Roxy seen Hart. this coming after getting. Uh, text messages of videos from the drag club last night i was like oh okay like that's <laughs> that's the precursor. Listen, what is the reason for the season it is not only the welcoming of summer but uh it is the silver anniversary of virginia west and we celebrate that we do celebrate that what was the one you sent me the clip of her doing um welcome to the black parade i was like oh that's fun for a drag show that's uh we it's a it's a good time it's a good time <laughs> fantastic um yeah, Chris, we have uh, we have an extra special episode. We've got three per, uh, special guests ready to offer their submissions for their choice for snubs. We have uh, blowing uh, it out finale ten picks apiece. This one will be culminating with your pick and my pick for number one snub, and I'm just incredibly excited. We have only like I like 
the the list of possible snubs is long and we only have 20 more so like there will be some snubs of snubs that yes we will uh before we leave today we will have the 100 years 100 snubs snubs yeah i'm uh, not ruling out that for like a future uh may mini series is what i will say not to uh not to get too far ahead snubs of 101 to 150 i'm already not another hundred. I, i'm already feeling guilt about at least one or two specific ones that I know uh, was on my long list, but is not going to make this. And uh, people are going to be surprised, I think, at some of the seemingly obvious ones that were left off the you list. You think but you know a person. You think you know a person. I know. I know. I know. Um, but that's why we play the game. That's why we, uh, I don't know, that's why this is fun and exciting. So Bef- before we get into our home stretch yes. of our biggest snubs of all time yeah why don't you uh lay down the ground rules in case there are any listeners any garys who are just now catching up to this main miniseries we've been doing so in the interests of um limiting our choices somewhat and making it a little bit more streamlined we have put a cap on uh maximum uh, choices we can only do at most one snub per category per year so if we have picked a snub from say the 1995 best actress race that's the only time we can uh, select somebody who was snubbed for that race we also have sort of informally limited ourselves to one snub per performer um so if we've picked a the Nicole Kidman snub somewhere we are not going to pick a second Nicole Kidman snub somewhere else um, this is why uh, Tom Hanks is on the list for A League of Their Own, but not for Captain Phillips, for example. Um, we've also mostly stuck to one snub per movie. So like David Fincher for Zodiac instead of Zodiac for Best Picture. Um, these have helped us, again, 100 is, is becomes a very small number when we're doing something like this. So these have helped us spread the wealth across a lot of different movies and a lot of different categories. Um, if a guest, uh, makes a pick, the it guests is are canon. immune. Yes. However, it might free up a slot for us as well. Exactly. Uh, we also, if, when we choose a snub, we also choose somebody who was nominated in that category to get the boot. So, uh, anybody in that category is eligible from, uh, getting eliminated, we observe, we reserve the right to enact what Chris has dubbed the Nicole Page Brooks vote, where we send them all home and all of the nominees get booted. We have not send all those bitches home. We have not up till now used the Nicole Page Brooks rule, and I'm interested to see if it does get used in this final stretch. Will the unfired Chekhov's gun be Nicole <laughs> Page Brooks? Uh, ultimately, uh, as we've been saying, everything leads up to our choice for the biggest Oscar sum of all time, which we will be saying at the end of this episode. Chris has his number one. I have my number one. So we are what in the home the stretch. Number one? Oh, chaos. Chaos and, and catastrophe is what will happen if we've chosen the same one. Um, that's it. This is our home stretch. Ten from me, ten from you, three from our guests, and and we will be uh, home before you know it. This is going to be probably a long episode, but it's going to be uh, our grand finale. So buckle up, children! Another May mini series uh, soon to be in the books, but uh, this was a fun one. I already can say with some confidence, this has been a really fun one. So um, I'm excited to get started. Well, then let's get into it. A shepherd girl. What can she be to you? Unless the desert sun has dulled your senses. Does she 
great garlic on her skin? Or is it soft as mine? Are her lips chafed and dry as the desert sand? Or are they moist and red like a pomegranate? All right, let's get into it. I am going to kick us off for this episode. I'm going to take us back to the supporting actress race of 1956. This is a performance we have talked about a lot. I've talked about this a lot on social media. Um, I've talked about this movie uh, when we were on screen drafts with Katie Rich. From the Cecil B. DeMille film, The Ten Commandments, I am choosing Miss Ann Baxter as uh, Nefertiri in The Ten Commandments, who is... You talked in in one of the previous episodes about how you are uh, endeavoring to have a horny pick on an each This is the horniest pick. We couldn't pick something hornier than this. Anne Baxter as Nefertiri is... Her character brief is essentially horny AF for Moses. Like, that's essentially her entire character motivation. She's super into Moses, and she's not afraid... Especially saying his name. Moses. 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 Um, <laughs> it's a delicious performance, I think. It's one of those ones, I've said it before and I'll say it again, I think the fact that the movie is called The Ten Commandments, and it's a billion-hour-long movie about the Bible that a lot of people in our, let's say, demographic uh, won't watch it, but... Do yourselves a favor. There is some real camp in this movie. And it's not just Ann Banks and Baxter. It's also Vincent Price. And it's also Edward G. Robinson. And it's also like glistening torsos in the Egyptian sun. But it is uh Ann Baxter is truly the uh gay icon that you don't know that you're missing in this episode. Horny legend. In this movie. Um she's also just in that sort of old movie star way, just absolutely lapping up all of the attention that the camera is showing her. She's just, she's a movie star. I saw this movie, uh, I mean, I had been watching The Ten Commandments on TV since I was a little kid. So, like, before All About Eve, before, what was the movie she won her Oscar for? Um, shoot. Oh, shit. Give me a second. I want to say The Razor's Edge, but I don't know if that's the title of it. That sounds right. Um, I think that's right. But anyway, so um, before I had seen Ann Baxter in anything else, I had seen her in uh, The Ten Commandments. So when all of a sudden I I was, you know, I'd gotten older and became aware of things like All About Eve, I was like, oh, right, that's Nefertiri from... That horny lady. Uh, it is The Razor's Edge that she won uh, Best Supporting Actress for. So anyway... um. Yeah, it's just an absolutely delicious, delectable performance. One At one point, she calls um, a servant lady who she's trying to threaten, Old Frog. Like, there's just so many, <laughs> um, uh, just absolutely, she has a, a sort of face-off at one point with um, Yvonne DiCarlo, and uh, it's just, again, gay people, you're missing out by not watching The Ten Commandments when it's on television every year. Um We've talked about this. You, I know, uh, enjoy Ann Baxter in this movie as much as I do. So, uh, What a delight. I appreciate that about you. So for the 1956 Supporting Actress category, I had, as I said before, I had not had as much time to do sort of deep dive preparation on some of these categories uh, as much as you have. This was one that I really made a point to watch all of the movies because I hadn't seen any of them. And... Um, 
the nominees that year were Dorothy Malone wins for Written on the Wind, the Doug- the Douglas Sirk movie. Uh, Mildred Dunnick for a movie called Baby Doll that was an Elia Kazan movie based on a, highly controversial uh, Tennessee Williams uh, play, I imagine. Um, and it's, I mean, talk about uh, horny. Like that is a <laughs> uh, deeply horny movie. As I said in my Letterboxd review, um, uh, Kate Winslet in The Holiday was right. Uh, Eli Wallach is super sexy because he is in this movie like my gosh um uh, what a man who are the other nominees uh two from the bad seed eileen heckert and patty mccormick from the bad seed and then mercedes mccambridge from giant so i finally watched giant i watched all of these movies but i finally watched giant which has been on my list for lesbian excellence uh as i said to you in a text and i don't want to um uh, certain words probably shouldn't be uttered by me on on uh, a podcast, but I said she showed up, she served C-word, and then she died. Like, that is Mercedes <laughs> McCambridge in Giant. She really just, um, yeah, lesbian excellence is is right. Uh, the sort of farm uh, farm lady. Uh, Giant's an incredible movie. I, I, yeah. probably, I knew why I probably hadn't made time to watch it before, because it is incredibly long, but it does kind of fly by and you know elizabeth taylor starring opposite rock hudson and james dean like this is probably the origin story of um elizabeth taylor becoming the the friend to gays worldwide <laughs> yes <laughs> that uh, she becomes a uh, tremendous movie mercedes became bridge is again in the grand scope of things sort of exits the film early but uh, leaves a huge impression written on the wind is um, another sort of like, these are some, you know, movies with pretty modern sensibilities or like some, there's some edge to these movies in 1956. Um, Dorothy Malone, uh, not to get too much of a spoiler ahead of ourselves, but, uh, can do battle by herself. In, the in the final the image of Dorothy Malone cradling that like, what is it? An oil derrick that is fully just a penis. Um. <laughs> All alone at the end of this movie, uh, Dorothy Malone. There, there's also the scene where Dorothy Malone is dancing alone in her room and sort of kicking up her heels while in counterpoint, uh, her father is falling down the stairs and dying. Um, tremendous <laughs> cinema all around. We love Douglas Sirk. The Bad Seed is a movie I was expecting to be pretty dated and kind of corny and, and dumb. Uh, it's not bad. I gotta say, uh, Patty McCormick plays the child. She, this is like, as I, it's sort of, you know, proto, uh, what if Megan was a human child? Like that's sort of Patty McCormick in this movie. She's got the perfect sort of pigtails and the little, you know, uh, she does a sassy dance. She does a yeah, right. I mean, basically everything, but like she does everything, uh, but do a sassy dance. She's a, uh, she kills some folks in this movie. She's sort of the original uh, evil child, but it's nothing supernatural or anything. She's just, she's a bad seed. And um, I went into this assuming I'd probably boot out the child performance because like it's a child performance, but um, she's doing some stuff there, I will say. And then Eileen Heckert, have you seen the bad seed? I have not oh. actually. Honestly, I'd recommend it. Eileen Heckert plays the mother of the child who uh, uh, Patty McCormick kills. 
uh, off screen, sort of like oh my. shoves into the river, right? And so Eileen Huckert shows up at the house and literally she's essentially just like, I'm drunk and here I go. Like it's literally just like announced <laughs> that plainly. And she's just, she's so entertaining. Um, uh, it sounds already like it's a better performance than what she won her Oscar for. Right. She won her Oscar for Butterflies Are Free, a movie that I have not yes. seen yet. Which, I mean, like it, there's some sentimentality to the performance right. that like it can be touching at moments, but it's also. Yeah. What? Uh, um, I I did not like that movie. If you don't know, listeners, who Eileen Heckard is, uh, if you've seen the first Wives Club, she plays Diane Keaton's mother in the first that Wives Club. That should be her Oscar. She's <laughs> tremendous in that movie. Um, so she's one of the many Oscar winners who is a part of the cast of the first Wives Club. Um, and then the fifth nominee was Mildred Donnick for Baby Doll, which is... Easily, I think, the least of these movies. It's fine. Uh, it's messy. It's messy as heck. And uh, actually stars one of the the daughters from Giant, actually. Um, oh, who's the actress? Um, uh, Carol Baker, who is the titular baby doll. And she's married to Carl Malden, who's this like awful, racist, uh, underhanded... Um, what cotton farmer or something like that anyway and Ilya Kazan or uh not Ilya Kazan uh Ilya Kazan directed it. Eli Wallach sort of shows up as this very sort of swarthy Italian who's you know gonna take her away and everything sort of and Mildred Dunnick is there as like uh baby doll's aunt who has one sort of scene where she kind of stands up for herself uh to Carl Malden but like is mostly just like the decent nice aunt older aunt in the movie so it's like it's kind of a perplexing nomination and it makes it a very easy boot i think for this so uh in goes ann baxter out goes mildred dunnick uh easy peasy and then all of a sudden that becomes kind of a fierce ass category if you make that swap you've got dorothy malone <laughs> you've got ann baxter you've got mercedes mccambridge drunk ass eileen heckert evil ass patty mccormick like that's kind of a that's kind of an amazing category. The ideal supporting actress lineup. Basically, yes. So what I'm saying is, uh, go watch The Ten Commandments. Go watch Written on the Wind. Go watch Giant uh, and the Bad Seed. These are all well worth your time, everybody. So um, kicking off this list with a bang. And Baxter, what do you have next, Chris? The category is Butch Queen First Time in Drags at, at a Ball. You know what I mean. You know what Paris means. Exactly. Butch Queen. Okay, so... I wanted to include uh, a, a movie that feels like has completely been canonized retroactively, absent of the Oscars, and that is, uh, I'm talking Best Documentary Feature of 1991, the masterpiece Paris is Burning. Hell I, yeah. I can't think of many documentaries that have as much place in the pop cultural lexicon as this movie. I think the visual identity of this movie is tremendous that, you know, uh, that they go into the New York city ball scene and immerse you so much in it, but come out of it with these incredible visuals, making like full iconography out of all these characters within the ball scene that, you know, really makes, uh, I think, a viewer who in 1991 would have no understanding of the scene whatsoever understand what was so, um, 
where their creativity was coming from, where they were finding their power in this art form, mm-hmm. and just the the like absolute depth of understanding that we get of these people and of this environment and how exciting it is all within like 80 minutes of screen time yeah it feels like you understand a real complete world in very short amount of time and just the hopes and dreams of all these uh, people you know all of the house of labasia it's Mm -hmm. uh, truly like one of the great queer movies of our lifetimes uh and it deserves to be on this list i initially had some hesitation to be like all right well is this me just trying to get some personal canon onto this list no it's a tremendous it had to have somewhat been on the radar this was actually a hit documentary at a time when you know documentaries didn't really make real money and like for a documentary a million dollars might be real money Mm -hmm. and it won new york critics la critics and national society so it had to have somewhat been on the oscars radar i couldn't find like an eligibility list to see how far it would have gotten in like the bake-off part of the process yeah let's talk about this category let's do so documentary feature clearly had different criteria than we would consider now. Um, Mostly criteria that uh, what are we considering a feature, friends? Because most of these nominees are like under an hour long, Uh uh which is not feature length. Right. And also uh, a lot of, uh, obviously when we're talking about documentary film and the infrastructure around the presentation of documentary film, you know, we're talking about a different uh, time period. So I don't want to be completely ignorant, but a lot of these things are produced for television. Yes. um, And would be part of like television periodical uh programming uh frontline uh, you know that kind of or whatever not necessarily frontline but like a lot of stuff that's like pbs i know for a yes. time in certainly the 90s and even into the early 2000s a lot of documentary feature winners would essentially just be like hbo uh, productions that would play enough theatrically to qualify for oscar that kind of thing right yeah um so, the winner is a documentary called In the Shadow of Stars, which is feature length, was in uh, uh, in theaters, etc. at the time. It's like a backstage look at opera stars. Okay. Um, and then the rest are not... The, you can find them on YouTube. And one of them I had watched in, like, middle school health I was going to say. Maybe we shouldn't have. What was um, that one? A documentary called Doing Time, which is like, you know, it's like one of those scared straight things where it's like, you know, sure. they're trying to be like, this is what could happen to you if you, if go to you prison. don't listen to your teacher, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. public education, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <laughs> the other nominees are Death on the Job, The Restless Conscience, and uh, Wild by Law. Sure. I am going to have to, based off of Paris is Burning's place in the popular lexicon, uh-huh. the fact that its winner was somewhat similar in in like substance and point of view. Sure. Uh, much respect to all of these nominees. You are all getting Nicole. Page oh, it's first. happening! The, appropriate that it would be for Paris is Burning that gets the Nicole Page Brooks sweep. I love it. 
I love it. I mean, they got to go home eventually, so send them all home. Send them all home. Um, I mean, Paris is Burning is, I think, unimpeachable. uh, Exactly. Both as culture, both as queer culture, but also as documentary filmmaking. Really, I mean, you talk about... American documentary filmmaking. (laughs) Thank you, Jody. Um, uh, Talk about, like, embedding yourself. And, of course, there, there was, you know something of a controversy in the years after about the filmmakers and, and, you know, who gets credit for, uh, who gets to benefit from this, you know, look at a subculture and yada, yada, yada. But I think just, I understand that I do too, However, but I feel like today, 30 years later, while we talk about the filmmaking of the film, absolutely, but, like, who do you walk away with from that movie, you know? Yes. You walk away with Venus Extravaganza. You walk away with every member of the House of Lubezia. And know? also, like, this is what documentary filmmaking is. It is a it, – or it, it often is, which is a journalistic um, – it, it can be a journalistic endeavor to seek out – a subculture or a story or something that is not known to the greater public and bring that story to a greater uh, recognition. And I think, you know, while certainly... We're all better for having Dory and Corey in our lives. This is the thing. And ultimately, uh, it's a it's an empathetic and a uh, really enlightening look at a part of New York City and a part of the sort of human... A cultural experience that had not been known up till this point. So it, it, it's, I mean, I think it's, it speaks to the power of the filmmaking that it does feel like you're enmeshed in this scene rather than something that feels voyeuristic. Yes. I think that's right. And it's like, it's all told in their words, you mm-hmm. know? Agreed. Agreed. Fantastic pick, fantastic deployment of the Nicole Page Brooks rule. And uh, I love it. All right. So my next pick is uh, in Best Supporting Actor from the year 1991. This is a performer we've talked a lot about as somebody who has never been nominated for an Oscar, and it's uh, puzzling as to why. I I had a lot of options for uh, choosing a film for this performer. Uh, It's it's John Goodman. I've considered... um, the Big Lebowski, which I definitely feel like he's an Oscar nominee for that for for that performance for me. Something like Ten Cloverfield Lane, which is that was never a movie that was going to be on Oscar's radar, but um, he's tremendous and terrifying in that. And speaking of uh, roles that he's tremendous and terrifying in, uh, that's a nice little meld between the Coensness of Big Lebowski and the scariness of Ten Cloverfield Lane. You meet in the <laughs> middle, and what do you get? You get his performance in Barton Fink from 1991. Um, a performance that feels like it was on the cusp of getting nominated. He was nominated for the Golden Globe. He was runner-up at the New York Film Critics Circle that year. And then his co-star, Michael Lerner, sort of sweeps in and takes the, I believe, the Los Angeles Film Critics Supporting Actor Prize that year. And ultimately ends up with the Oscar nomination. And um, Goodman, I, you know, all respect to Michael Lerner, but like Goodman is the performance, the supporting performance in Barton Fink that really sort of 
no pun intended, but kind of blazes off of the screen in that movie. You know what I mean? That's he's <laughs> he shows up. This is the uh, Barton Michael Fink. Lerner rules in that movie too, and he just passed away. So yes. Um. So anyway, Goodman. So the movie is this sort of um quasi Clifford Odets, uh, you know, uh, Fantasia, right? Where uh, this this very sort of working man. This playwright who wants to write uh, plays about the working man and and uh, sort of holes up in this hotel and then finds it impossible to <laughs> write anything. And he ends up uh, being joined in this hotel by John Goodman's character who passes himself off, I believe, as like a traveling salesman. And as we spend more time with him, he gets more and more intense. He reveals himself as this like serial killer on the run and by the end the hotel is burning down goodman is like the actual embodiment of the devil by the end of this movie he's sort of standing in front of these you know uh uh, burning flames and it's i don't know if you can get anybody to do this performance who's not goodman who can take you from this kind of unassuming everyman you know somebody who you would uh, enjoy spending some time with who can get like gradually a little bit more terrifying. And by the end, he's the devil, you know what I mean? So, um, it's a tremendous performance. He's, you know, his work with the Coen brothers has been so good over the years. It's, uh, for somebody who was nominated for as many Emmys as he was through Roseanne and, and subsequent performances that he's never been nominated for an Oscar has been, uh, puzzling, especially because like, in both this movie and Argo, he ends up being passed over for co-stars who I think he's better than in the movie. Like, again, no disrespect to Michael Lerner, no disrespect to Alan Arkin and Argo, but, like, Goodman's a more, like, makes more sense as a nominee, I think, in both of those. But anyway, um, the nominees in 1991, this is the year that Jack Palance wins uh, for City Slickers and does one-armed push-ups and says he could take a crap bigger than uh, Billy Crystal, and everybody's delighted. Tommy Lee Jones is nominated for JFK, one of, I would say, a half dozen people who probably would have been worthy of nominations from JFK, including Gary Oldman and Joe Pesci and Donald Sutherland, and um, just a fantastic cast in that movie. Uh, Two from Bugsy, Harvey Keitel's only Oscar nomination ever is from Bugsy. And then also Ben Kingsley, I believe Kingsley's playing Meyer Lansky in that movie, right? Um, And then Michael Lerner, as we said, for Barton Fink. So... I'm going to maybe the lean double on... Bugsy nomination when it's like literally the other three movies would be better to have double nominations. Yeah. For. Yeah. I mean, right. Yeah. Throw in uh, Bruno Kirby from City Slickers or something like that. You know, I'm yeah. hot for Bruno Kirby. I know you are. Um, you would accept his wagon wheel c- coffee table. And uh, I would. And when Harry met Sally. Um, yeah. So I think that's the thing is you give Barton Fink the double nominations instead of Bugsy. I'm not going to take away Harvey Keitel's only Oscar nomination ever, even though it's a weird one. Uh, ben Kingsley's already an Oscar winner by this point. He would be an Oscar nominee again. So I think I'm going to uh, bump Kingsley from the lineup, add in Goodman, and uh, sort of correct the historical record there. What do you think? As somebody who's recently seen Bugsy. I don't think this is a great lineup. And the I'm Tommy not, house, I'm not thing, Nicole Page Brooksing it. I'm not doing it. I mean, the, the thing about Tommy Lee Jones is, like, obviously there was a whole controversy about it because, like, it's 
The performance is thick. Uh, um, it is. I think it's great, though. Oh, I think he's so. Uh, yeah, so good. but like JF, how do you walk away from JFK and say yes? The performance we're going to nominate is Tommy Lee Jones, not Donald Sutherland. I know. Like what I are know. you talking? Well, the about? thing about Donald Sutherland is he's in one scene and it's all exposition. It's just the greatest one scene exposition scene in like cinema history, right, kind right. of. Um, and I think Oldman. Even this is where I stand up. Obviously, talking a different category, but this is where I stand up for Kevin Costner. That I'm like, that's his best performance ever. He's amazing. He is actually. Um, um, yeah. Spoiled for choice on uh, JFK though, and Tommy Lee Jones was obviously like rising towards his Oscar win. Yes. So yeah. I get it. Um, Tommy Lee Jones I was think... sort of the unexpected. He's the one who didn't get. He wasn't nominated for the Globe. I don't think he got any critics. Like he was kind of the surprise entry into this uh, last minute. Right. Yeah. Ben Kingsley is kind of a bummer because I feel like Ben Kingsley gets the short end of the stick in terms of Schindler's List, which I think he's agreed. Agreed. In. That should have been a double um, supporting nomination. Yeah, uh, I would probably boot Jack Palance, but I I will I will respect your. It's a comedy performance. It's it's so memorable. I don't want to rob the historical record of that moment of uh, wackiness. Get you it. know what I mean? Get it. Um. No disrespect to Kingsley and Bugsy, and it's been Bugsy's the movie I've gone the longest without seeing. So maybe I'm I'm misremembering um, uh, something there, but that's I think that's my choice. All right, all right. What do you got? have a gold standard for everyone that people maybe don't even realize was originally written for a movie um best original song 1977 new york new york from new york new york i feel like well a after the movie the song became like one of the standards for Frank Sinatra. I feel like maybe nobody talks about why wasn't this song nominated because they think that 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 it wasn't originally written for the movie and that I the would Frank have Sinatra that. version has always existed. I would like, have assumed that. Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, it's written by Candor and Ebb. Uh, you can go see the Tony-nominated musical on Broadway right now. Um, Listen, starring uh, what's his face from. Uh, um, Dear Evan Hansen, Colton Ryan, who I guess is tremendous sure. in it. I've heard very good things about him in New York, New York. Um, this uh, this is a movie that I feel like, you know, for listeners who want us to go back and do older things, it is a movie we could absolutely talk about. Liza yeah. Minnelli is incredible in this and uh, acts circles around De Niro and it's crazy. Um, so good. Uh, but, like, there was a lot of kind of hostility towards this movie it was like la la land before la la land but dark (laughs) um you know and you have this very tempestuous marriage at the center of it so like i kind of get why it would be kind of glossed over Mm -hmm. but um yeah new york new york one of like the 
songs in like the universal songbook. Everybody knows this song. Everybody knows the everybody like, who's ever been to a Yankee game. Everybody who's ever been to any kind of uh, event celebrating event. New York City. Yeah, yeah. Anyone who's ever been in a show choir. Right, right, true. Uh, speaking of anyone who's ever been in a show choir, the winner is You Light Up My Life from You Light Up My Life. Uh, what is You Light Up My Life about? Do we know? It, Does anybody know? It's about, like, a school, right? Is it? A, Hold is on. Is it about a, like, isn't it, is it a deaf school? You know what? Your guess is as good as mine. I would have, You Light Up My Life is another one of those songs that seems to exist independent from the movie that it's a part of. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I'm going to look this up. Yeah. Hold on. You Light Up My Life. Directed by Joseph Brooks. Um, uh, starring Dee Dee Khan from, uh, from Greece, of all things. Um, da, 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 da. She plays a no, talented a singer school. and songwriter who feels obliged to follow her father's Borscht Belt comedian career. So uh, the D.D. Khan uh, masterpiece, uh, You Light Up My Life. So there we go. Oh, co-starring Michael Zaslow of uh, uh, daytime television fame. He was on um, uh, Guiding Light for so many years and and One Life to Live and um, ended up, uh, he died in 1998 of uh, Lou Gehrig's disease and actually performed in his later years uh on television as his character uh, uh, with Lou Gehrig's disease. Interesting. Interesting little tidbit. Uh, for the purists out there looping us back, uh, I suppose I should be calling it the theme from New York, New York, but now, I mean, it's New York, New York. Um, it was written for Liza. Like, and then Frank, Frank Sinatra Liza snatched it from her, essentially. <laughs> right. Uh, well, and this is also Scorsese was dating Liza at the time. Scorsese, uh, uh, like uh, his his dating life, he he has some gay taste. In oh, the say. fact, like when I found out only a few years ago that he had been married to Isabella Rossellini was yes. uh, was a gag. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, okay. The other nominees: uh, Candle on the Water from Pete's Dragon, Helen Reddy. Truly, I, I'm not just saying this, throw it out there, we stand Helen Reddy. Seems to um, me you've lived your life like a candle on the water. That's the lyrics to that song, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, good movie, Pete Strack. Oh, uh, yeah. Someone's Waiting for You from The Rescuers. Sure. The Slipper and Rose Waltz from The Slipper and the Rose, The Story of Cinderella. And Nobody Does It Better, The Spy Who Loved Me. Love fucking, nobody does it better. The love nobody does it. Classic better. combination of Carly Simon, Marvin Hamlish, and Carol Bayer Sager. My God. Like, can't do better. Can't do better than that. You really can't. Some days I would go so far as to say nobody does it better is the best Bond song. I mean, there's some competition there, but it's up there. It's it's in the conversation. Competition sure. from Tina Turner, obviously. Competition from Shirley Bassey, obviously. Yes. Grrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr
I it probably was the like kind of animosity that that movie was met with. I was gonna say yes. I'm gonna boot the slipper and the rose waltz. The story of Cinderella. Like, yeah. who cared? I listening yeah. to that song. I didn't watch the movie, but I listened to the song. We're talking original song. We can cheat it. We can just like Chris File said he d- he's not interested in any Cinderella who isn't bad at this point. He's only interested <laughs> in bad Cinderellas. I'm apparently the only one who's interested in a bad Cinderella. Uh, if that's the case, uh huh. Um, yeah. That's a good choice. That's I think that's, you know, process of elimination. That's the good choice. Indeed. All right. What do you have for us? Daddy loves the horses. He wants me to go away. No, he doesn't. But he doesn't know. He doesn't know what? Samara? Uh, I have for us, where am I going? I'm going to the year 2002, uh, the best makeup category. Um, I, so I'm going for, uh, the ring, Gore Verbinski's the ring and best makeup 2002 with the caveat that I understand that the ring is the American remake of the Korean original film, which when we're talking about, I'm going to be talking about the ring, both as an accomplishment in and of itself, but also as an influence for the decades of horror filmmaking that would come behind it. And I understand that like the Korean ring got there first, Ringu got there first. I still feel like particularly in terms of the, the makeup, the sort of the Rick Baker, Jean Ann Black, Bill Sturgeon, the makeup team uh, and the makeup team from the ring sort of takes the lead from Ringu and really amps it up and really creates from that template a a horror vision that would end up as i said sort of the next two decades of horror filmmaking take that lead from the ring how many movies have we seen where like the villain or the ghost or the monster or the creature is some sort of takeoff on samara from the ring just visually with the 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 black sort of goopy hair and the you know drenched in 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 water and she's a drowned sort of vengeance demon right um also her victims too that like distorted face thing which apparently would that, also be ripped off but that wasn't makeup yes that would be ripped off too that wasn't makeup actually that was a full um uh contortionist no <laughs> no it was a um prop essentially um uh. Along with visual effects. God, carry that prop around and just like hide it in your family member's closet. I'm saying, I'm saying, wait. (laughs) Um, But uh, uh, Rick Baker was a Saturn Award nominee for the makeup for the ring. Uh, Just putting Samara uh, in all of that sort of makeup, the scene where she crawls through the television is still one of the most terrifying things I ever remember watching um, in my entire life. And the way she sort of. just that visual presentation of her is just so absolutely terrifying and uh, kind of shocked because that was a success. That movie was a success that year. And I know that horror has a hard time getting a foothold with the Oscars, but there were only two nominees for best makeup that year. Um, Frida, which won, uh, which again, maybe wins for coloring in the space between Salma Hayek's eyebrows. Like maybe that's, <laughs> There's more going. No, on. I know. I'm only. I'm making a joke. But um, uh, and then the time machine, which was, uh, I can't remember who directed the time machine, but that was Guy Pierce. Gore Verbinski. 
Was that no, also the Gore Verbinski? Gore Verbinski. The ring, uh, um, no, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold yeah, on, hold yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think it's Steven Summers who did the Mummy movies? I think I think you may be right, but let's double check that. Um, best makeup, two thousand two, The Time Machine. Simon Wells directed that. Um, sure, never mind. Uh, uh, the great grandson. Wait, Simon Wells is the great grandson of H.G. Wells. I guess that's how he got the job. Um, yes. He had also directed also the Prince of Egypt. The Prince of Egypt, yeah. And we're back a dinosaur story. So um, clearly, uh, uh, Nepo baby Simon Wells was doing okay. Um, but it was uh, Guy Pierce. Of course, who could forget the only film to star Guy Pierce and Samantha Mumba together? So uh, <laughs> uh, truly a moment in time. So yeah, I think I put uh, The Ring. Uh, I'm not going to Nicole Page Brooks these two. I'm going to keep Frida around, but I'm going to boot The Time Machine. I was going to say, do you even need to boot with only two nominees? Well, that's like... the existential question. I would feel like I was maybe skirting our little rules to just add uh, The Ring to this. I mean, I also feel like this kind of justifies its own placement. I had a, I, there was something I was strongly considering for best makeup that, there wasn't a makeup award given that year, even yeah. though there had been in years previous. Oh, interesting. So, interesting. I feel like this this almost justifies its own existence in the list. All right. Simply because there's two nominees. Well, throw in an Oscar nomination for The Ring. We'll let the time machine stick around. We'll have three nominations for makeup. Although I imagine the, the only two was that there were only a certain number of movies that qualified as having... But, like, every movie has makeup. Like, that's a weird... I don't right. know. Um Give the ring a nomination. It deserves it. What do you think? Do you do, am I am I shortchanging Ringu by by jumping it in the queue for the ring here? I'm trying to remember, and I would I could go and do the research, but like I don't want to sidetrack us too much. Sure. I think Ringu never got a U.S. theatrical release until afterwards. I think it was one of those things that was only available around. Yeah, like DVDs oh yeah, that was back VHS when it was like really hard around. to find foreign language movies yeah. like that. It took me a while to see Ringu. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think I'm 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 standing by this uh, this nomination. I think it's correct, good and correct. All right, Chris, where are we going next? I believe that you is mine. You ain't the one. She's not the one. Back off, Virgil. I am a drag queen. All right, we're going to best costume design in 1995. Here's one that I feel like was at a slight disadvantage because of a recent uh, winner in this category that the movie bears a lot of similarities to. Uh, I am talking about Marlene Stewart's work for Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. Fantastic. Uh, the, the costuming in this movie could not be more joyful, more not just celebratory of the art of drag, but just like celebrating these, uh, you know, Midwestern women uh, from the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, uh, it, I mean, come on. This is a movie that makes the costume choice to put Alice Drummond <laughs> in a hippie vest and headband. Genius. She looks fierce. Brilliant. She looks fierce. Uh, Alice Drummond, uh, flawless queen. Uh, legend Alice Drummond. Uh, l- legends all in this cast. Honestly, to be yes. Honest. All like, of those, those towns ladies are are legendary absolutely legendary um 
to the point, like, you have Melinda Dillon, you have... Uh, Blythe Danner. Blythe Danner, obviously Stalker Channing. The legend, Beth Grant. Um, Kathy Geis mention, from, uh, from 30 Rock. <laughs> yeah. Not to mention the three leads, Patrick Swayze, Wesley Snipes, and John Leguizamo, mm-hmm. who all look tremendous in this movie and granted yeah. there's parts where in the beginning of the movie that john leguizamo is not supposed to look as tremendous because she is a drag sure. queen who is learning her art um how many challenges does Nagzima uh jackson win on drag race looking like she does in this movie like four probably four i mean yeah. like Noxima jackson absolutely wins a comedy challenge <laughs> Noxima jackson also wins the makeover challenge like uh she oh, 100%. really she really invests because in she's alice like, yeah she has the surprise friendship so of mm-hmm. course she does well in that challenge yeah, yeah. um this is also just a great <laughs> movie that i love that i it's tremendous considered placing elsewhere i really thought for a long time putting Wesley Snipes as a best actor um, snub because I think Wesley Snipes just blows the roof off this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, like just the costuming is so... You get a wide range of drag in the movie, especially in the opening sequences. Yeah, And, you know, it's... I think it understands what uh especially like 90s drag was celebrating in what it you know the fashions that it puts the women in as yes. well and i mean i think the most iconic costume in this movie is stalker channing's standoff red bride oh. outfit you know? oh tremendous Ooh, pulling back that's a that finale veil. look right that's yeah. a finale look that's you walk right. out at the finale and you're wearing that and you're with a winner. we're all drag queens which She's right. She is. Um, and then, of course, the uh, the final look that Cha-Cha wears at the very end of the movie is just like, I mean, come on. That was legitimately uh, uh, copied by Selena's titties this year for yes. the reunion. Yes. Very intentionally. Very much as an homage. Yes. Um, yeah. No, it's, it's absolutely the right choice. It's perfect. It's a perfect selection. Do you think there was a sense that because... Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, won in 1994, that Oscar voters were like, well, we've done that. We've done the drag movie in costume. I feel like, yes, because, I mean, Tu Wong Fu was also a studio movie released in that fall. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, I mean, Tu Wong Fu, I think, was considered more of a commercial disappointment, probably because, you know, you have movie stars in it. Yeah. Um, And, like, it's just never going, it wouldn't have made that level of money. so yeah, I think the direct correlation to uh, Priscilla Queen of the Desert, which while they they're movies that bear a lot of similarities, I right. think the costuming comes from a very different perspective. I mean, like the Priscilla costumes are like they turn them all into lizards, like they have <laughs> lizard costumes yes. in the movie. And yeah, it, very different thing. Um, yeah. yeah. Whereas this is like nostalgia, Americana, and then just high drag. Have we said uh, who the costume designer was on Tu Wang, tu Wang Fu in case we... Marlene Stewart. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, so the Oscar nominees that year, Restoration wins. <laughs> I forget what episode we talked about. That 
Costume drama restoration. Yes. Uh, restoration hardware wins the Oscar. <laughs> um, also nominated 12 Monkeys, Braveheart, Richard III, and Sense and Sensibility. Yes. If I remember correctly, we'd already booted Restoration. You already have once, yes. So I don't I don't want to necessarily pick on that movie. Especially because but... you don't remember it at all. Sure. <laughs> well, no, because like I, I did my research. I was like, I'm not gonna watch this movie again, right. but I'm gonna like, you right. know, go and investigate why I think these costumes won. Yeah. It makes a more legitimate case as a nominee than I think Braveheart does. I think you're right. Because all those kilts, like, though, all those all, kilts, all those leather kilts covered in mud. <laughs> like I, I get it that you probably had to make the most. It's probably the most costuming uh, sure. of all these movies. But I don't know. I, I don't. They didn't even have it, to make pants, though. It's just all skirts. So I mean, when on. you're up against like Twelve Monkeys, which does some wild oh, shit yes. and is like such a cool nomination, yes. And like Richard the Third, which is like playing with the eras and like mm-hmm. is it supposed to be? You know, are there supposed to be anachronisms in this modernization of yes. something? Yes, and it's cool. And then Sense and Sensibility. I mean, top to bottom, gorgeous. Yes. Can't you know? There are no faults in that movie. Yeah. So yeah, I'm booting Braveheart. I think that's the right call. I think that's right. Besides, I'm putting in a gay movie. You gotta boot the homophobic movie. Yes, exactly. Uh, Don't look now, Chris, but uh, I think I see somebody approaching in a red wedding dress with a veil on, and we can't tell who it is. I do. Is it? Is it? Oh my goodness. It's a guest. It's a drag queen. It's, We're all drag queens. We're all here drag today. queens. We have a guest uh, with our next selection. And without further ado, hi, Gary's Oliver Sava here, calling from backstage the Burlesque Lounge. I only have a minute before Tess wraps up her number, so I'll be fast. The Oscar snub that breaks my heart is Greta Gerwig's joyful but kind of tragic performance as the titular role in Frances Ha. She got a surprise Globe nomination for it, so there was some buzz, and it could have been one of those moments when the Oscars takes a chance on a standout performance from a very small movie. You know, like Amy Adams in Junebug, Jennifer Lawrence in Winter's Bone. What I appreciate is the love in Gerwig's performance of this character that has a lot of flaws. She's this extremely relatable millennial artist struggling to stay on a creative career path in a challenging job market and city that is pricing her out. The film is also a paragon of friendship cinema, encapsulated in what could have been Gerwig's Oscar clip, a drunken monologue where she talks about the kind of transcendent feeling she wants to have with any person in any relationship, not just romantic or sexual. I would kick Merrill's Osage County grandma out of the lineup and give Greta some early Oscar love before she became the Oscar darling she is now. And kudos to Joe and Chris for making their outro song the same one that plays during Frances Ha's awful Paris trip. Everyone's a winner, and I can't wait for Greta to beat Christopher Nolan for Best Director this year. Okay, it sounds like Tess's number's done. I gotta go. Love you, Garys! Oliver. What a flawless submission. Truly. Uh, Taking the assignment and running with it, Oliver said. Go back to our burlesque episode. Um, Okay, first of all, correct uh, boot. Yes, (laughs) yes. One million percent. And uh, also, thank you for uh, doing the call-out for the song, Oliver. We love you. Um, Yeah, great choice. Remember when Greta Gerwig was an actress? Yes, I do, because she was in one of my favorite movies of all time, Frances Ha. So I, I... 
absolutely had uh, Francis Ha as a Best Picture uh, snub on my snub list, which I then, because we got Oliver's submission, I decided that it spread the wealth and I'd let uh, Oliver take the Francis Ha ball and run with it as gloriously as he just did. Um, and so my next selection is was my replacement. So it's essentially my, like, you can call it our 101st, uh, maybe, or uh, uh, my 51st uh, selection. But <laughs> um, I stand behind it uh, just as fervently. So... Sydney Ellen Wade has done nothing to you, Bob. She has done nothing but put herself through school, represent the interest of public school teachers, and lobby for the safety of our natural resources. You want a character to debate, Bob? You better stick with me, because Sydney Ellen Wade is way out of your league. I'm taking us back to 1995, the best original screenplay category for everybody's favorite screenwriter and uh, and certainly uh, yours as well, Chris. Uh, Aaron Sorkin for <laughs> The American President. A, in many ways, sort of the best big screen distillation of what I really love about Aaron Sorkin as a writer. And I've loved a lot of his movies, whether they be scripted by him or or directed by him, you know, Steve Jobs, and uh, he obviously wins the Oscar for Social Network and Molly's Game and, and such. Um, the American President is his most sort of self-consciously Capra-esque. I think he, he probably had a photo of Frank Capra sort of pinned <laughs> to uh, the bulletin board in the room where he wrote the script for The American President. It's unabashedly... Um, sort of pie-eyed and optimistic about what the uh, White House could be. I've talked a lot, a lot, a lot about the West Wing in my uh, time uh, writing and commenting on culture. And one of the things that I think sometimes gets forgotten about the West Wing is that it wasn't really, it was taken when it was airing as a counterpoint to the uh, George W. Bush presidency, but it was written as a kind of pushback to the Clinton presidency as to like, what if we had an idealistic president who also was an upstanding man, right? And uh, that's what we get in Andrew Shepard in The American President is like so much of the thrust of this movie is this idea that the Republicans are coming at him for you know, family values reasons. And he's, you know, he's dating a woman and, and does this make him unfit to be a leader because he's, you know, whatever, having a relationship with a woman he's not married to and undue influence and all this sort of stuff. And the big uh, moment at the end is when Andrew Shepard sort of stands up and says, you know, you can take your moral superiority, uh, Richard Dreyfus, and, and shove it. And Fuck you, Richard Dreyfus. Truly. Um, and, it's this incredibly rousing scene, but like the middle portion of this movie in between all of this, you know, uh, all of these grand sort of, uh, uh, statements and the, you know, I'm Andrew Shepard and I am the president, which is the scene everybody really remembers is the other thing that the West Wing is really good at, which was the processiness of the, uh, the White House staffers trying to get you know, this crime bill passed and Sidney Ellen Wade played gloriously by Annette Benning, trying to get her uh, environmental uh, protection, like carbon emissions uh, bill passed. And she's taken all these meetings and um, incredible, you know, incredibly performed by the supporting cast of, you know, Michael J. Fox and Martin Sheen and David Paymer and Anna DeVere Smith and uh, uh, Samantha Mathis. Uh, uh, it's John Mahoney, who's her boss, right? Who's Sydney's boss, I believe, in this yes. movie. Um, yes. uh, Joshua Molina. Just, uh, it's, 
it was the prototype for the West Wing for a reason. And it's for what it is, it succeeds brilliantly as being this, you know, as I said, sort of Capra-esque look at what if, you know, the White House was something we could really be proud of. And it was a Writers Guild nominee. It was a Golden Globe nominee. Uh, it actually got a ton of Golden Globe nominations. Um, I believe it got something like five Golden Globe nominations total, which, like, that's a front runner at the Globes. Like, the, you don't get too many... Uh, total nominations at the Globe. So, like, five is a ton. It got a picture and director. Like, Reiner was nominated for director, both of the stars. Um, and ultimately gets almost entirely blanked by the Oscars. It gets a, right, it's just the score nomination, I believe. Correct. Great score. Tremendous um, score. Uh, but otherwise gets uh, blanked. Where, where are you on The American President? I know you've talked about how much you like Annette Bening in this movie. I love the American president. I don't give a fuck. Um, <laughs> the American president is a gauntlet to see how many syllables Anna Devere Smith can fit in <laughs> as few seconds as possible. Uh-huh. Um, it is like the like punchiest script in terms of just like casual quotability and also like yes the like. I, I'm Andrew Shepard and I am the president, like yeah. high quotability of it. I yeah. think it is Aaron Sorkin, aside from the social network, with like the least Sorkin problems that I have. Sure. And it's just a fun movie. Like, I don't think it's a movie that should be taken super seriously on any level, but in terms of delivering something that is like classic hollywood fun it's so watchable oh my god it is champagne it is yeah uh we love the american president yeah so the other thing about nominating uh the script for the american president is you thrust it into truly one of the wildest and most problematic screenplay lineups uh ever so (laughs) Uh, the the award is won that year by Christopher McQuarrie for The Usual Suspects, a movie that I still love despite the fact that it is intimately uh, associated with both Brian Singer and Kevin Spacey. Uh, Christopher McQuarrie does not deserve to be tarred with the same brush as those two. And yet I think The Usual Suspects sort of, you know, is looked back on with uh, a lot of the raised eyebrows and askance looks. Um, and I will grant people that. But uh, as a movie, uh, it was one of the sort of early, you know, Joe as a teenager really sort of like falls in love with this hard-boiled crime narrative that was twisty. And um, it's an, it's, it's one of those ones, those early building blocks movies for me. So I can't ever really remove it from uh, my psyche. Uh, other nominees that year were Randall Wallace for Braveheart, uh, Woody Allen for Mighty Aphrodite, Oliver Stone, Christopher Wilkinson, and Stephen J. Ravel for Nixon. And then... Take a deep breath. Here's the team from Toy Story. Joss Whedon, Andrew Stanton, Joel Cohen, not that one, Alex Sokolow, John Lasseter, Pete Docter, and Joe Ramft. And, like, again, Andrew Stanton, Pete Docter, et al. do not deserve to be lumped in the same boat (laughs) as John Lasseter and Joss Whedon. But, like, this is a category whose nominees include Woody Allen, Joss Whedon, John Lasseter, and include films like Braveheart and... Mighty Aphrodite and the usual suspects. Like this is um 
This category would be burned <laughs> to the ground. Stone is your least problematic. This is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying, man. Like it's really, really something laugh, else. But it's it's just so I'm so yeah. so. Um, this category would be burned to the ground if you ever uh, floated it out there on Twitter. So, um, and again, and it's not like Aaron Sorkin's the darling of social media at this point, anyway. I mean, but, and it's it's. Uh, in fairness, it's John Lasseter and Joss Whedon for Toy Story. So, like, right. maybe people are just happy to look the other way when they see those credits. There. 100%. 100%. And, like, I don't think it makes Toy Story worse. I think Toy Story is just as good of a movie as it was, you know, right. before all of this. So, anyway, um, as for who I'm booting, I'm taking your lead from uh, your previous uh, 1995 entry, and I'm booting Braveheart because I will boot Braveheart uh, as often as possible. So... Um, okay, this actually, I do think the boot selection would be hard because also Mighty Aphrodite is like it is. It's not a good it, Woody like Allen the Helena movie. Bottom Carter character is so yeah like yeah. Ugh. This was back when Woody Allen was pretty reliable for a screenplay nomination, though. This was, right. I think, his if not his because he was be- making one movie a year, so there was probably a movie in between Bullets Over Broadway and Mighty Aphrodite that he made in '95, probably, but. Um, it's right on the heels of Bolts Over Broadway, which was a you know huge Oscar player, and he got a director nomination for that, I'm pretty sure. So obviously Mira Servino wins the Oscar for Mighty Aphrodite, but that was really um it's kind of surprising that the screenplay got nominated because other than Mira Servino, the movie didn't really make a ton of impression. So yeah, I considered booting that one, but the screenplay for Braveheart, the one that writes in this like incredibly offensive uh, depiction of a gay character who then gets his lover thrown out the window of the tower to like cheers from the audience, like no, fuck that, get out, get rid of that movie. I'm I'm done with it. Um, all right, Chris, what do you have next? Sometimes you can still catch me dancing in it. going to best original score of 1990 a score that i cannot believe mm-hmm. is not an oscar nominee i would probably put it among the gr- we're not uh fully devoid of problematic uh presences but I a know. score <laughs> that i would put among the greatest of all time like yes you're not wrong. To say I that. put this on my Christmas playlists. <laughs> the score. Um, we're talking Danny Elfman's work for Edward Scissorhands. Oh, I can hear it in my head right now, and it's so beautiful. And like you're getting like goose flesh yes. just from thinking of it. I yep. mean, there's something. I mean, like the score really kind of captures the movie's sense of like otherworldly everyday like wonder mm-hmm. um and just kind of this storybook legend that is edward scissorhands of the or edward i guess scissorhands is not really his it's not his <laughs> government name it's you know, true it's, he it's did not political. go by uh mr mr scissorhands your uh your appointment is yeah. ready yeah, yeah, yeah scissorhands comma comma edward right l um the l stands for lover um <laughs> jesus christ 
Edward Scissorhands is also a movie that should have kind of run the gamut at the Oscars. It it was a hugely does it win popular makeup or is it nominated? It's for nominated makeup? for makeup. Uh, who does it lose to in 1990? Um, it was a hugely popular movie too. I remember being like, it made it was enough of an imprint in the culture that like it was referenced on an episode of Seinfeld. You know what I mean? Right. Like that. That was sort of my always my uh, gauge for what penetrated the culture at the time. It lost to Dick Tracy for makeup, which like fair enough. That's most makeup. You know, sure, that's a lot going on. Listen, you make I a man prune face, and 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 you do a lot of work, right? On it, so yeah, uh, <laughs> but it's also it's I think it's another sign of you know we talked about this a little bit with Beetlejuice the uneasiness with taking Tim Burton that seriously, you that know, being such a pop artist, yeah. Um, and it's like you look at Tim Burton's work now, and you really wish we could have taken it seriously while it was justifiable to do so. You know who should have been um, nominated from Edward Scissorhands is Diane Weist. You know what? She actually did. W- she was winning like critics awards. She should have. She should have. That's She's how so good in that movie. You know who should have been nominated for that movie? Speaking of horny nominations, Kathy. Baker. You, I know you love some Kathy Baker in Edward Scissorhands. My concept as the a ambrosia child salad. of like hot woman, like <laughs> the idea of like hot woman who wants to have sex as like a child in my mind was Kathy fucking Baker sure. in this movie. Um, I mean, like, yeah, so, so much going on just like design wise that is so beautiful but like the Danny Elfman score truly oh. does create a sense of wonder i think it's his best work that's I the think. thing is even if you were going to ignore edward scissorhands in your top line categories your acting your directing your picture it's still baffling that danny elfman wouldn't get a score nomination okay so the lineup includes dances with wolves wins uh barry levinson's avalon ghost Havana, a uh, notorious Redford bomb. Havana. Camilla Cabello's Havana was nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> That's incredible. Unbelievable. You have like uh who who would be present who I wonder who would have presented this like uh in 1990? God, who even knows? Angelica Houston <laughs> for Dances with Wolves, Avalon, Ghost. Havana Unana <laughs> and Home Alone. Fantastic. Uh, that Home Alone nomination's really fucking cool. Um, yes, it is. And it's like there's populism here in this category. Don't understand. Yeah, I know why Danny Elfman can't be there. He didn't get nominated until 1997. He got double Which nominated in 1997 wild. for the musical or comedy score for Men in Black and then dramatic score for Goodwill Hunting. And again, the Men in Black score you can probably hum in your head. The Goodwill Hunting score is pretty good, but like I defy you to uh, say that that's more of an iconic score than Edward Scissorhands, like or Pee Wee's Big Adventure is the other one. You know what I mean? Like these. Was Tim he Burton- ever nominated for a Tim Burton movie? Big Fish. Like- Big Fish was the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A Big Fish, which uses what in its trailer? The music from Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that was a trailer that knew what it was doing. Um, yeah. yeah. Listen, yeah. all we're saying is that Mr. Bridget Fonda should have been yes. nominated for his best work. Boingo Boingo a, himself a... should have been nominated. Yes, I agree. Uh, and I'm going to give the boot to Havana Hunana. Yeah, sure. Get rid of Camila Cabello. She was what... Uh, not born for another 
she, kn- she knows what she did. <laughs> she knows that flash mob, you know, made her retroactively ineligible for a score she didn't write. <laughs> All right. Uh, very good. Good selection. Good choice for the boot. Um, agreed. We're going to do the next one. Yeah. All right. I didn't know I had another mother. Of course you do. Everyone does. Best Art Direction, 2009. I am nominating the uh, Henry Selleck film Coraline, for which uh, Henry Selleck did production design. The uh, art direction team uh, was headed up by Phil Brotherton, Bo Henry, Tom Proust, Don Swiderski. Uh, This movie was a runner-up for production design at the National Society of Film Critics. It lost to Fantastic Mr. Fox. It is, in fact, an animated movie, and animated movies have been nominated for art direction, but rarely. I remember Kubo and the Two Strings was nominated for art direction. Um, stop I motion. thought it was visual effects. Was it? Okay. I know it got something. nominated for something outside of some uh, craft category. Can you look that up while I blather on and on? I shall. Thank you. Tell us about Coraline. I mean, Coraline's a stop-motion animated movie, and with all that that um, uh, involves, but the art direction for something like this, and from pretty much all of Henry Selleck's movies, there is a, um, at this, like, you know, very small scale, there is such an attention to detail. I think that's what you get from these, you know, really uh, wonderfully cared-for movies that Henry Selleck does. Um and the art direction in Coraline is absolutely stunning and creepy and sometimes sweet. You know, obviously everybody remembers uh, the mother, the whatever other mother uh, voiced by Terry Hatcher with the buttons for the eyes and everything is um, sort of, you know, the stuff that's sort of just off is, is very sort of effectively creepy. And I think in general, animated movies when possible, when you're able to sort of discern where the craft begins and where, you know, the animation, uh, how to differentiate that. I think whenever possible, animated movies should be considered for their craft more than they are, because they are um, something like this. You look at something like Coraline, it is just a feast for the eyes. And a lot of that is that production design, that art direction. I love the fact that it lost to Fantastic Mr. Fox, if anything, for National Society of Film Critics. Like I almost put Fantastic Mr. Fox in for costume design. It's a fantastic choice for that, because again, those little fox costumes are tremendous. The little... Um, uh, the the whatever the bandit masks that's what he calls them right you gotta wear we gotta wear our bandit masks um are really tremendous what a great movie Fantastic Mr Fox is uh where did Kubo end up by the way visual effects was it visual effects okay um probably could have been nominated in art direction or production design I don't remember if the ch- category had changed names by then um you're a Coraline fan I would imagine yes yeah of course yeah I mean. We we can't talk about I can't talk about the Henry Selleck uh, Wendell and Wild thing. Oh, anymore. I know. Um, I know. That's another one with a lot of art direction, <laughs> a lot mean, going on in Wendell and Wild for sure. It's almost as if the animation in that movie is tremendous. It's almost as if yes. Um, oh gosh, what a what a movie. Okay, so uh, nominees in two thousand nine for art direction were uh, Avatar, which won. The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, the uh, Terry Gilliam movie that uh, went through, obviously, those production uh, 
difficulties when Heath Ledger passed away. Uh, nine, Rob Marshall's nine. Sherlock Holmes, which was Guy Ritchie, right? Um, Correct. With uh, with Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. And then The Young Victoria, which was uh, Emily Blunt as the titular Young Victoria, a movie I still haven't seen, but I really should, which won costume design that year. Um, yes. Avatar, as I mentioned, wins for Best Art Direction. Um, I'm going to leave it where it stands. The temptation was because... I'm just in general not a fan of nine um, was to boot nine. But then I think about how much I love that the Italian number in nine and even something <laughs> like cinema Italiano, which I think is not as good as the B Italian number, but is like, is so campy and, and it's Kate Hudson and I love her. Um, I think the art direction as with most things in Sherlock Holmes is kind of ugly and um, a little bit repulsive <laughs> And I generally just am not a huge fan of that movie. And I know it was a big hit and, um, and you know, Hollywood likes to reward those things when possible, but did it need to be nominated for art direction? Like I say, no, just because it was a lot of this sort of steampunk, uh, old, you know, England kind of stuff, Victorian era. I don't know. I'm bad with the eras. Usually I say something and then I'm wrong and then somebody yells at me or whatever, but I think it was Victorian era. Um, Isn't Rachel McAdams, the female lead in that movie? The, thank- like, the most rescue- thankless task is Rachel McAdams. Rescue her from crap movies like that. And isn't... Who's in the sequel? Is the sequel like Rebecca Hall? No, Rebecca Hall was the Holmes and Watson movie. I think that's right. I think God. Rachel McAdams is also in the second Sherlock Holmes movie. Um, but anyway, yeah. Rachel McAdams, uh, 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 yeah, uh, supporting actress candidate this year for Are You There, God Is Me, Mark. I got. I think I'm God. seeing that this week, so I'm excited to see it. Um, but yeah, booting Sherlock Holmes, throwing in Coraline. Uh, what a great movie! And there we go. Where are we going next, Christopher? And I suppose you see a piece of this for yourself. It's my plan. We're in this together. Yeah, but it's my money and I don't need no fucking partners. Ain't your partner, I'm your manager. And I'm managing to get your money out of Mexico into America in your hands, and I'm managing to do it all under the nose of the cops, so therefore I'm your manager and a manager gets 15%. No, manager get 10%. <laughs> no, that's an agent. A manager gets... 10. No, no, a manager gets... 15%, agent gets 10, I'm getting 15%. Uh so we're going we've we've had a lot of uh craft categories and we had a screenplay nominee. We're going back to some acting snubs. Woo-hoo. Uh so we're going to talk Best Actress 1997, and we're going to talk about my winner for that year. Yeah. Uh, none other than Pam Greer as Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown. Remember that trailer that was just her? She kept saying Jackie Brown. Jackie Pam Greer is Brown. Jackie Brown. And my God, what a tremendous performance that obviously, you know, piggybacks on the career of a screen icon mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of riffs on it and does its own thing. Mm-hmm. I think this is probably a movie, you know, Jackie Brown had some backlash to it, uh, uh, some of which is the backlash that happens to every Tarantino movie. But mm-hmm. I can't imagine following up Pulp Fiction and all of its bombast with this minor key character study that is Jackie Brown and the performances in it and 
how exquisite all of her scenes are with Robert Forster. It's great that Robert Forster got nominated. It, those should be his and her nominations. Um, she, I think, kind of, you know, mops the floor with all of the other lead actress contenders that year, yeah. maybe with the exception of Kate Winslet and Titanic. But, like, she's easily my winner. Like, just the... It's incredibly fun watching Pam Greer in this movie in the kind of twists and turns of this quasi heist, you know, basically drug money smuggling scheme in the movie. Right. But also the, you know, the, I don't want to say like cracks in the surface, but like the person, the decades worth of like hardship that just like can't help but bubble uh, above the surface at every minute in this movie. Uh, just in- so incredibly fascinating to watch in this whole movie. And this person that you in- root for so much and like creates a dynamic that I don't think you see in a Tarantino, any other Tarantino movie. Mm-hmm. It is my favorite Tarantino movie and uh, my favorite performance in one. I I just love her in this movie so much. What do you what are, what are your thoughts on Jackie Brown? I really like Jackie Brown. I really respect Jackie Brown. It is it's in the whole Tarantino thing. I think a lot of people have Jackie Brown as their favorite. I still think there are other movies that kind of uh, stay in my mind a little bit more prominently. But it's not what people go to when they go for a Tarantino movie usually. Yes, but I think it has attained this position as like the thinking man's Jack or the thinking man's Tarantino. You know what I mean? Like the more discerning uh, Tarantino choice, and I can't argue with that. I think it's a very uh, well done movie. I'm not as big of a fan as Samuel L. Jackson in that movie as I am in other movies, but um, I think Pam Greer is pretty uh, flawless. Pam Greer and Robert Forster are that's the show for me right there. Like that's sort of. Uh, what you're there for. He got the nomination and supporting. Um, it really would have been cool if she had gotten the nomination. And I agree with you. I stick up for Helena Bonham Carter and the Wings of the Dove a lot because I think she's really tremendous in that. But I think in general, uh, you can slot Pam Greer above almost everybody in that category. Yeah, which you mentioned Helena Bottom Carter is nominated. Helen Hunt wins. Yes. Julie Christie is nominated for Afterglow. Judy Dench for Mrs. Brown. And uh, Kate Winslet for Titanic, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad lineup. Like, I don't no. take umbrage with any of these performances. I just mm-hmm. think, I don't know. I guess the well isn't as deep as I think Pam Greer's is. And, like, yeah. Do uh, do I get different notes from each of those performances when I rewatch them? I mean, I haven't seen Mrs. Brown in years, but Judy Dench is spectacular. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like I I notice something different when I rewatch Jackie Brown in the performance, and I feel different things when I watch it too. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel mean making this my boot because I feel like you know. People have made a whipping post of uh, Helen Hunt, yeah, uh, and her win. But I think she's my boot. I mean, she's not my favorite in that category, but I also don't remember a ton about Afterglow. Like, uh, it's a supportable choice, and I will uh, uh, stand by you. But uh, 
I think ever since I heard that Helen Hunt's role was written for Holly Hunter. Sure, yeah, it's tough to you, put that out of you your head. Imagine the version that Holly Hunter would have given. Yep. It's just like yep, you I get can't it. unsee it. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Where are you? Uh... Where am I for this next one, you ask? Well, Hello? 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 Hey, quiet! It's him again! The Mona! Let's take a trip back to the 70s, man. The the, the swingin' Hollywood 70s. And, uh... <laughs> you mean the swingin' uh, Canadian 70s. <laughs> sure, yes. Uh, the terrifying 1970s, as it were. I'm going to the best cinematography category. In 1974, for one of my very favorite horror movies of all time, We've talked a lot of, in this project about uh, getting nominations for horror and for comedy. I think those are the two genres that we uh, are arguing most strenuously that should have more uh, uh, recognition at the Oscars, and I think rightly so. Um, Black Christmas, 1974's Black Christmas, directed by um, – is it sh- – give me a second. I think it's directed by Bob Clark, who did A it Christmas is. Story. Yes, it is. I knew it was the director of A Christmas Story. I couldn't remember. I wanted to say Sean Cunningham, but that's um, – uh, Friday the 13th. Okay. The two genders, truly. <laughs> Christmas Story and Black Christmas. Uh, so, yes, directed by Bob Clark. Uh, the fact that the same mind uh, gave us uh, Black Christmas and A Christmas Story is really something else. But uh, um, cinematography for Black Christmas was uh, done by Reginald Morris. And it is a... Again, just one of the best horror movies. One of the best-looking horror movies, though, is the other thing. It just—it's a movie that takes place inside a, a sorority house on a college campus, just as people are starting to break for Christmas. So people are—you know—you—you've got that—you know—people are leaving for home on their own schedule, and you don't know who's left yet, and that sort of contributes to this air of like, oh, I haven't seen such and such in a while. She's probably gone, and she's—you know—dead up in the attic with a plastic bag over her head. Right? There's a psychopath lurking inside the house and you never ever ever find out what this guy's deal is you he's a heavy breathing voice on the phone he is a pov shot of the camera he's uh never seen and it's and he's never caught is the other thing by the end of the movie he's still in that house and olivia Husey plays uh the main character but marco Kidder's in this movie a tremendous andrea martin looking like hell yeah but, uh, who uh, 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 who did I say this year that she was a dead ringer for? Kind of um, um, all the beauty and the bloodshed. Nan, uh, uh, Nan, Nan Golden. Golden. She, look at Andrea Martin looking like Nan Golden in this movie, which is kind of amazing. Um, tremendous movie, but the sorority house, the look and the feel of the sorority house, the sort of dark corners this is a movie that's taking place when like the sun sets at 4 15 in the afternoon right like this is it's very much winter time it is very much um this is you know this sort of 1970s homey decor where there's not a lot of light it's a lot of sort of uh even the the you know with all the lights on it's this kind of very uh a dark wood, dark, you know, atmosphere inside the house. And it, it contributes to just this absolute mood of dread and this mood of very 
unfussy. Un, it's not like there are these big sort of like gothic, you know, corners or whatever in this house. It's just like a very regular house. But it is, um, it's terrifying. It's so moody. It's so um, unassuming. And it makes you so scared of just like, just the way your house looks in the evening when the sun sets early and and it's dark and you don't know who's on the phone and you don't know who's, you know, this is a whatever, three stories plus an attic kind of a house. You know what I mean? So like there's so much of this house that this guy could be uh, hiding in. Um, I love this movie. It's I came to this movie only maybe maybe five or, or seven years ago or something. And I've ended up watching it every year since just mm-hmm. like uh, either during Halloween time or during Christmas time, just because it's so perfect. I love it so much. Every year it moves up the ranks in my yeah. favorite horror movies. Full stop. I, I think calling it out for cinematography is really smart because there is this really terrifying visual quality to it that you know it really hones in on a lot of that darkness and the you know genericness of the setting and like there's almost a there is kind of this i don't want to say flat quality but there it, it does capture the like blandness of sorority life or campus life in a way that makes it more terrifying i'm also somebody who's very much i'm very much a christmas person and i love christmas lights i love sort of sitting in my living room with you know the only light in the room is the christmas tree and it's just Mm -hmm. like that's the kind of thing that really comforts me and a movie like black christmas is like okay but what if the christmas lights illuminating a room made it really creepy instead what if it made it (laughs) you know and that's sort of how it feels a movie like that i think gremlins does a similar thing where it's just like what if the lights the christmas lights were unsettling rather than you know beautiful and i love that yeah i think this is a movie that uh a lot of modern horror is indebted to yeah. not just in you know it kind of its themes but also it's uh you know avoidance of giving you closure or sure. spelling out the whole story i think all of the remakes have learned absolutely all the wrong lessons from this movie and yeah. they try to you know fill in those gaps yeah in a way that makes it less scary less interesting mm-hmm. and um I felt the same way about, like, Midsommar. Like, part of the fun of Midsommar is not knowing everything that's going on, not having it all spelled out mm-hmm. for you, and you having to piece things together. And then you watch that director's cut, which people say is better, but it's like, it spells everything out for you. It yeah. demystifies the entire movie. I've still never seen the director's cut. I don't know. I, I was so worth your time. I was so like, scarred back in the day of watching that Donnie Darko back, uh, director's cut and, and being so yes. sort of disillusioned about uh, how that turned out that i was like do i really need to see the midsummer director scott you don't you don't uh so the nominees in 1974 for cinematography uh, the towering inferno wins chinatown is a nominee earthquake uh, nominated lenny bob fossey's lenny and then uh murder on the orient express so uh right off the top of the line you've got two disaster movies nominated for cinematography the towering inferno is sort of the more notorious one but it's also the one i think that has the most sort of memorably visual uh aspects to it for as much as it's this you know scene in retrospect is this sort of corny thing stuffed with movie stars and everybody's trying to escape this building but like there are 
uh, I remember certain visuals of it. Uh, Earthquake, which is a movie that like I feel like used to be on TV a lot. I remember watching it. the The scene where the big the big Los Angeles earthquake happens is first of all it goes on forever, and it's kind <laughs> of it's kind of funny. It's it's watching it now, especially. Um, it's there's a there's kind of a high camp factor to it that I don't think was intended in the original, uh, in the original version of it. There's a lot of like just people sort of like standing and like you know everything's shaking like incredibly violently and these big pieces of set are, uh, are tumbling onto people and whatnot. And there's a kid who's in danger and there's power lines coming down everywhere and all this sort of stuff. And it just seems kind of uh, a little silly nowadays. And I'm not getting rid of Lenny. I'm not getting rid of a Bob Fosse movie. I'm certainly not getting rid of Chinatown. Um, it's interesting to me that in a year where The Godfather Part Two, you know what I mean? Like a lot of right. these like really great movies. Um, obviously, Chinatown is there and Lenny is there. But um, it's surprising that there would be these two sort of corny disaster movies instead of something like The Godfather Part Two. Understandably, like they weren't looking at something like Black Christmas as an Oscar nominee, even though they should have. But like. Um, so I think I'm booting Earthquake of, of that's, that no, I think that's the wise choice. Yeah. Did you ever go to, back in the day, Universal Studios when there was an Earthquake ride? I've never the been. crunchiest experience. It was <laughs> so corny. That's so funny. No, I've never been to Universal Studios in any, in any shape or form. Uh, the closest yeah. I've come is, uh, one of my recent trips to LA. I went to the Buca di Beppo at Universal City Walk. That's as close as I've ever come to Universal Studios. That is Italian Universal Studios. Basically, essentially, it's like Italian food, the, the, the theme park version. The ride. Yeah. Yes. Italian food, the ride is 100%. Marinara, the ride. Buca di Beppo. Uh, highly recommended. All right. Where are we going next? Could you ever conceive of going to Italy, Tom? and uh, bringing him back. What? I'd pay you if you would go to Italy, persuade my son to come home. I'd pay you $1,000. So was it the last... Was it part four that we talked a bunch about 1999? Maybe. And I I feel like generally it's been a topic for this miniseries, you know, of 1999 being this incredible movie year yes. and a bad Oscar year, at yes. least, you know, at the very top of the Oscars. Yes. Because this is a movie, talking best picture, this is a movie that, you know, got some nominations, got an acting nomination, but part of the reason why it feels so much like a snub is the story behind it. We've talked uh, about it before. Um, I am well on the record as being, this is one of my favorite movies. I'm talking about Anthony Minghella's The Talented Mr. Ripley. Hell yeah. So it was a Paramount Miramax co-production. I believe it was Paramount had the U.S. distribution Miramax had overseas. It was kind of like the... You know, it, it but was it also had shunted. like the Miramax All Star lineup, right? It was Damon and Paltrow, and you know what yes. I mean, like all the darlings of Miramax. You know, and uh, you know the backlash, for lack of a better word, even though that's not the right word, was settling in for Minghella. It was settling in for Matt Damon. It was settling in for Gwyneth Paltrow. You have Kate Blanchett and uh, 
Philip Seymour Hoffman getting great critical notices, but they're smart. Their parts are very small. Um, so Jude Law is the one who kind of emerges the most victorious in the whole movie. A star is born, um, Jude Law. Exactly. But I mean, this movie is a stone cold masterpiece. It is. It is. You know, surprisingly, you you would think that in the late nineties, Matt Damon in a lead role, it would, you know, dodge the gay text of the movie more than it ultimately does and i'm sure even at the time it was frustrating because you wish there was more of it however i mean if you've read the patricia highsmith novel which like it it does does diverge from somewhat but as far as an adaptation of the tone the texture especially the you know the the gay vibe of what it is and uh you know the frankness or lack of feels accurate to Hythesmith's vibe. Um and like, I don't know, be gay do crimes. Like, it's... <laughs> he sure does. <laughs> he he sure does several does. crimes. Yeah. Uh among them murder, fraud, and uh more murder. Other things. Yeah. M- more murder. Yeah. Um yeah, if you haven't seen the talented Mr. Ripley, uh I- I've said enough on it. Uh what are you doing with your life? Go watch it right now. Yeah. Tremendous movie. Uh, we've talked about it on other podcasts. We talked about it on screen drafts. Um, My number one movie of 1999. Oh, with a bullet. Same with me. It's so good. Yep. Yeah. Yep. American Beauty, obviously the winner. Also nominated The Cider House Rules, The Green Mile, The Insider, and The Sixth Sense. The Insider is my vote of those nominees to win um, pretty safely. Sure. And also when we talk about I don't understand why this is the case, but it is when people talk about the Oscars not being good for a great movie year, it all gets lumped on the Cider House rules. Right. And I feel like the more egregious Best Picture nominee is The Green Mile. Sure. Like, yeah. schmaltz, like, pseudo-religious schmaltz the movie. Yeah. And, like, I could sit back and probably watch all three hours of The Green Mile, uh-huh. you know, and just check out and be, you know, absorbed by it. But under no circumstances is it good. Right. <laughs> like, I think it is the worst nominee than The Cider House Rules, so I'm giving it the boot. I think that's the right call. I think that's smart. Oh, Chris. Oh, look. Back to the Strawberry Social. Uh, let's see what type. Who brought us a pie? There's another person in a in a red wedding dress approaching us, holding a strawberry pie and uh, and a shotgun. And strangely enough, and also a shotgun. Uh, it's quite a look. And uh, as we see, the uh, the veil is coming off, and it is our friend Bobby Finger with a choice for his pick for Oscar snub. So the first snub that came to mind was one that I was pretty sure Joe would mention, and he did in the first episode of the series, which is Cameron Diaz and In Her Shoes. One of my favorite performances of all time. I can't do that. So my mind went to music. I think that there are constantly snubs in the best original score and best original song categories. I get really passionate about those because I feel like you see the same cast of characters all the time in those two categories. There's not a lot of experimentation in those two categories. I think that can probably be said for a lot of categories. But for some reason, those two just are always meaningful to me. I always think that they overlook people. So then I had two that came to my mind initially. One of them was Thomas Newman's Meet Joe Black score, which was not nominated its year. I looked at its year and it was like Life is Beautiful, Elizabeth, Pleasantville, Saving Private Ryan, Thin Red Line. Pretty good. 
list of things. My two favorites from that list, Pleasantville and Thin Red Line, did not win. Life is Beautiful did. But then I was like, you know what? Thomas Newman gets nominated left and right, even though he didn't win or get nominated for what I think is his best score. I want to find another category, which is best original song. And the powerhouse in this category, who has only been nominated once and has been writing amazing original songs since like the mid 90s is Mary J. Blige. She has written like at least four songs for movies that could have won. Her song for Waiting to Exhale, her song for The Help, which is amazing, her song for Mudbound. But I think my favorite Mary J. Blige song that never got recognition is I Can Do Battle By Myself from the Tyler Perry movie, I Can Do Battle By Myself. I think it is her best original work for a movie. I think it is kind of like a classic best original song song, just like all of her songs for movies are like classic. They are about the movies. They are not conceptual. They are not vaguely related. They are about a theme of the movie. They are about characters in the movie. And I think that I Can Do Better By Myself elevates what is, I think, already Tyler Perry's best movie. It is the narrative of the film. It's the narrative of the Taraji B. Henson character. I just think it's like a classic original song in every sense of the word. She is just kind of an incredible storyteller when it comes to, I mean, when it comes to her music generally, but I think that like she has a particularly wonderful knack for taking the themes of movies that she either appears in or is a fan of and distilling them into like really powerful music. And I think that none of her original songs for movies are as effective or as beautiful or as memorable as I Can Do Bad By Myself. And I hope you play a clip of it because it's incredible. And when you look at the songs that were nominated that year, it's The Weary Kind from Crazy Heart. It's Almost There from Princess and the Frog. It's Down in New Orleans from The Princess and the Frog. It's a song called Luan de Panem from Paris 36, which I have not seen or heard, and Take It All from Nine. So I would cut Luan de Panem from Paris 36 because I have no idea what that is. And you know what? (laughs) Even though The Weary Kind is one of my favorite best original song winners ever, I put I Can Do Bad About Myself above it, I think. So... It's the winner. Thanks, Joe and Chris. Bobby, what a legend. Also, yes, Paris, whatever. Paris 36. How do you not remember Paris 36? I remember on that Oscar ceremony when they par- <laughs> when they performed that song, it felt like a fever dream. It felt like a collective <laughs> gaslighting, like yes. all of Hollywood was gaslighting everyone viewing at home that this was a real movie, all yeah. due respect to the film's creators and its songwriters. But still, it was just like, what is this nomination? Honestly, yes. Yes. Good choice. I love that Bobby went for something from the uh, music categories. I love uh, hearing Bobby talk about scores and, and original songs for movies. So that was a perfect choice. We love Mary J. Blige here. And uh, yeah, fantastic. I loved it. Where are you taking us now? Dr. Not told me you'd be here. Was Blue Fairy here too? I first heard of your Blue Fairy from Monica. What did you believe the Blue Fairy could do for you? She would make me a real boy. But you are a real boy. At least as real as I've ever made one, which by all reasonable accounts would make me your Blue Fairy. I am going to take us to the Best Director category in 2001, which... Um, uh, the movie is AI Artificial Intelligence, a movie that I went back and forth as to where I wanted to 
include this on this list. I had for a while that I was going to uh, give it to Haley Joel Osment, whose performance in that movie gets better and better every time I see it. I think it's such a tough needle to thread for such a little kid. I think it's so it's even as, as impressive as I find him in the sixth sense. I think AI is his career. Like that's the, that's the thing he really should be remembered for just in terms of how difficult that's got to be to play a robot playing a boy who who wants to be seen as a boy and not a robot, but the robot, you know, sort of like keeps peeking through and just the duality of that. It's so hard. It's so hard. And he's so good. Um, but instead I'm going to give it to Steven Spielberg for best director for artificial intelligence. Uh, I also toyed with giving Spielberg director for jaws. Cause it's, jaws and uh <laughs> they gave you know, it to fellini they gave it to fellini and they should have given it to spielberg for jaws because it's it's one of the best movies of all time um but ai is such an impressive almost more impressive for the ways that it falls just short of being you know of of perfection really uh it's there are jagged edges to AI. There is a lot of people sort of are down on the ending. I'm not necessarily. I think that that ending for that story makes a lot of sense. Obviously, the sort of Stanley Kubrick of it all becomes so much a part of the story that it was originally a Kubrick project, which got passed off to Spielberg after Kubrick died. Um, the world building in AI is really, really incredible. The story of it, the sort of the, you know, humanity of it, this quest narrative, um, the fle- everything about the flesh fair, which like all the, anytime there's any more news updates about AI in any way, I'm always just like, maybe Brendan Gleeson had the right idea with the flesh fair. <laughs> different type of AI, different type of different AI. Ty- different type of AI. But listen. Uh, that sequence is so fucking upsetting. It is. Too. It's incredibly upsetting. Obviously, I'm not uh, advocating uh, the cruelty of Brendan Gleeson in that, but I'm just saying, beware of AI. Um, it's... It's just a tremendously fascinating movie. And I think Spielberg doesn't always get credit. This was a thing with the Fablemans, too, where I don't think Spielberg often gets credit enough for movies, for the complexity of some of his movies. And I think a lot of times he get, his movies get sort of boiled down to these really kind of simplistic readings. And I think AI was one of those movies. I think the Fablemans is one of those movies. Whenever I stick up for War Horse, I'm always talking about how like there's a little bit more going on there than maybe you think. Um, I think it's easy to sort of read artificial intelligence as this kind of, you know, uh, lost boy story that he's, you know, he's looking for the blue fairy. And by the end, he gets this, you know, sort of a sweet, happy ending. But there's so much darkness to mm-hmm. AI. And... um and Spielberg really leans into that in a lot of ways. And um, it's, again, a movie that gets better every time I see it. The first time I saw it, I was perplexed by it. And I did not think it was, you know, I thought it had a lot of problems. And I think every time I've seen it, any kind of those misgivings have either gone away or I've realized that what I initially was sort of twigged by is actually one of the film's strengths with the, mm-hmm. again, it goes into that complexity. And I think it's a really, really good, um, uh, really good movie. Spielberg was nominated at the Golden Globes that year. He lost to Robert Altman. He was uh, a Saturn Award nominee 
and he lost to Peter Jackson. Uh, both of those, I mean, Altman for Gosford Park and Peter Jackson for uh, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, tremendous. I don't think I would, you know, quarrel too much with that. It's an interesting Best Director lineup in 2001. Uh, it's Altman, it's Peter Jackson, David Lynch for Mulholland Drive gets director but not picture. Ridley Scott for Black Hawk Down gets director but not picture. They were both instead of Baz Luhrmann for Moulin Rouge and Todd Field for In the Bedroom. So like mm-hmm. that's a really interesting uh, case there. And then the winner of all of those talented uh, filmmakers and tremendous films, who wins but Ron Howard for A Beautiful Mind? Um, I am house down bootsing this for sure. Like Ron Howard. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I mean, I've, I've not made a secret of the fact that I really don't care for a beautiful mind. I have nothing against Ron Howard specifically. I don't think he's, I think a lot of people sort of line up behind the, like Ron Howard's a hack kind of a thing. I think Ron Howard's made some really good movies. This is not one of them. What do you, where, where do you fall on both AI and this year's director lineup? I do not love this director lineup, I have to say. AI, however... I mean, AI is a movie that I've seen having more and more vocal fans as the movie ages. And I think... I hope that means that Spielberg gets more credit for the type of storytelling risk that this is. Because obviously it's a huge movie, so it has to be sold to a wide audience. And it's just... I think in that, you know, it was meant for a wide audience. It was never going to have yeah. a friendly reaction because you can't expect, like, Mom and Pop and Branson to sit down for a giant, massive visual effects extravaganza Spielberg movie and deal with this incredibly complex, not just emotionally, but also this kind of real question of where we're going in the future and what we the like complexities and the questions of what technology means for our own humanity. Um, yeah. Or, you know, it's ability to expose the truths that are already there, that we are fucking monsters. Um, I don't expect, uh, I, I don't think you can ever really expect a, uh, friendly response from this movie. Sure. But I also think Spielberg was kind of written off in that he was like chasing Kubrick yes. at the time, at least. And it's like, I don't think we talk that way about this movie anymore, but he got, I think this is one of the movies that he got the short end of the stick for. And I think it's one of his riskiest movies, especially narratively, the way that the story is structured. It is a like behemoth of a movie. It, it, it's just not the time. It's not, I don't know. It's like his biggest art film ever made. A wide yeah. audience is not going to, yeah. you know, understand this movie, especially without sitting with it for a while. Yeah. Um, I watched it in the lead up to the Fablemans again, and it's, I it yeah, it's it's one of the top Spielberg movies for me. It's it's a lot to kind of grapple with even just like talking about it i think it's one of his most complex movies all right chris what do you have next let's say let's say for example you have some gorgeous woman standing in your office naked and you're feeling her fucking tits now what i want to know i want to know what are you really thinking about when you're squeezing 
I'm staying in 1999, and we're talking about Best Actress, a movie that we definitely will do in the future at some point when we have another three hours to sit and talk <laughs> and still probably not get to all of it. Yeah. Um, Nicole Kidman for Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> Nicole Kidman was one of the examples of, you know, when we're talking about the kind of parameters and rules that we set for ourselves for this. It's yeah. like, we're not going to do 14 Nicole Kidman performances. Yeah. So it's like picking the one was a little, you know, difficult. I obviously thought about birth. I think that's one of her best performances. I thought about other options. I'm very on the record of saying her you know, Oscar resume is very not indicative of sure. who she is as a performer. Sure. So once I'd settled on this, it made complete sense to me. You know, this is before she's fully taken seriously. Obviously, To Die For has happened at this point, and she almost was nominated for that, presumably. And, like, Eyes Wide Shut being completely blanked for the oscars was no surprise at the time because you know critical response was not good again a movie sold to a wide audience that it was absolutely not going to get a friendly response for yeah but um every time i rewatch this movie i am again kind of a gog at her really uh like un i don't want to say unhinged but just like you can see her as a performer being liberated in somewhat of a way. And she's somewhat talked about this in her career in terms of it helped her be director focused. And, you know, she speaks very lovingly of Kubrick. Um, and like the way that people were like, Oh, his methods must've been horrible. And she's like, I could have done that every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> yes. uh, but um, in some ways it is, both atypical and I think the kind of quintessential Kubrick performance in that like through stillness, she communicates so very much and she turns the entire movie on its head with just her gaze. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I always laugh when she does the like uh she does that belittling voice about his penis or something yes. or titties or so- she says titties or something yes. and it's just like what is this performance this is uh, yeah uh she's amazing she's absolutely amazing and I think we can get into it when we get into the movie. I think she remains entirely grounded in the real world throughout, whereas most of the movie is this kind of nightmarish fantasy. Yeah. Um, she's spectacular. She should have been taken seriously for this movie. Agreed. Uh, who, however, the uh, one people we could rely on to give her her due was the good people at Blockbuster. She is a <laughs> Blockbuster Entertainment Award winner for favorite actress in a drama romance. Yes. Uh, God bless the Blockbuster know, Awards. Maybe stretching the designation to call this movie a romance. Uh, but we get it. We get it. Yes. Uh, who are our nominees that year? Well, Hilary Swank wins for Boys Don't Cry, or as Roberto Benigni said, Hilary Swank for Boys Don't Cry. Yes. Um, Annette Bening for American Beauty, Janet McTeer for Tumbleweeds, Julianne Moore in The End of the Affair, and Meryl Streep in Music of the Heart. This, I mean, when people talk about this race, it comes down to them talking about Hilary Swank and Annette Bening, and they kind of overlook the other ones. 
I think Julianne Moore is great in the end of the affair, even if it's one we don't maybe talk about for her. Same with Meryl and Music of the Heart. Yeah. Obviously, there's complex feelings about Hilary Swank's performance in Boys Don't Cry. I still think that she's good in it. Um, The one I would boot that I hadn't seen for a long time, watched it at some point in the pandemic, and still was kind of left scratching my head, was Janet McTeer in Tumbleweeds. I... We we talked about movies like this when we talked about Anywhere But Here. There's, you know, a lot of those parent-child go across country and uh-huh. restart their lives somewhere uh-huh. and, you know, reconcile their relationship. And it's very much that movie, but I thought it was one of the less exciting ones I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, I suppose Janet McTeer, if you hadn't seen her before, she's a primarily a theater actress maybe this performance would kind of surprise you more but i i didn't see a lot of there there um i support in terms that. of a nomination i haven't seen tumbleweeds yet ever so um but i support that uh that distinction if only to stand up for uh, meryl in music of the heart so <laughs> that. listen many a times has meryl uh taught us to run yes Taught us to, yeah. what hi, not hide, but what are what are those Diane Warren lyrics? Anyway, Meryl did that for us. <laughs> no, you taught me to fly, not hide. You didn't ta- teach me. Oh yes, she did teach us to fly. Um, this was before lockdown drills in classrooms, so Meryl Streep did not te- have to teach her music class to hide yet. Uh, so, <laughs> oh Jesus, fucking sorry, it's Joe Reed. Sorry, um, it's dark. We're living in. dark She taught times, us to see the man. music of our heart. We're living in dark times. Okay. All I do is worry and slave and defend you. And all I get back is that fucking face on your face. All right. My next choice, Best Actress 2018. Of course, I could not get through a list of snubs without talking about the great Tony Collette in Hereditary. Um, I, this feels like a no-brainer, right? This feels like what do I? what more needs to be said about... Tony Collette in Hereditary. It's one of those performances that you get to the end of it. It's sort of like Jennifer Lawrence and Mother, actually, where you get to the end of it and you're just like, how did you, where did you pull this <laughs> wherewithal to play this character? Just there's, it's the intensity of it. I'm not saying that she actually crawled up to the ceiling of, of the house while she was filming this, but like she very well may have just on the strength of her you know, uh, her her energy and her, her commitment to this role. Um, she did slice her own head off, though. Playing a woman who's already dealing with... Uh, I mean, that's, you know, that's those Australian actresses, man. They'll just come to set and just be like, yes, I'll slice my own head off for this role. It's fine. Um, she's playing a woman who's already grieving the death of her mother, who was a sort of secretive and exacting woman who uh, we learn more about over the course of uh, the film. Uh, And as she's trying to process this grief, her daughter gets killed in the most awful way you could possibly ever think of it. And uh, her reaction to it is to just absolutely just self-immolate uh, uh, often, uh, uh, literally, um, and obviously the scene where she loses it on 
uh, Alex Wolf as her son is the one that sort of gets played a lot. The, you know, I am your mother and, and, you know, you sit there with that face on your face. Uh, um, tremendous scene, but it's just, it's one of the most committed and dialed in horror performances that I can think of. And it felt like we were on the cusp for a minute there of maybe getting a little bit of respect for, you know, performances in horror movies enough that maybe Tony Collette was going to enter that conversation for Best Actress in 2018. And it didn't quite make it there, but it feels like we're sort of like inching closer to this kind of, you know, uh, respect and consideration for horror performances. I know you are a fan of Tony Collette. I could have gone a bunch of different places for a Tony Collette snub. I considered Velvet Goldmine. Uh, uh, I will say, if I was, go- if I'd, and I had debated, uh, if I'm putting Tony Collette on this list, I probably would have picked a different performance. Uh, either The Hours or, or Velvet Goldmine or... Uh, Muriel's Wedding. Muriel's Wedding, Japanese Story. There's so many uh, options. Lest we forget uh, Connie and Carla. I know you are... <laughs> lest we forget Connie and Carla. I know you are a fan of Midsommar. You talked about it just a second ago. Uh, are you as much of a fan of Hereditary? Oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, I think Midsommar is the better movie. Um and I be, I begrudge nothing. Uh, sometimes the 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 fans of this performance do drive me a little crazy. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, so we can save it for the eventual hereditary episode. I have sure thoughts on this movie in terms of what I think the perspective is that I think you know, even though it's a performance where she saws off her own head uh-huh. and you know is hiding in the crevices of her own architecture. Uh, it, it is a you know grand like uh, like Greek tragedy yes. performance you know like theater of the mask shit <laughs> that <laughs> happens to be an horror movie I yeah think. yeah and like that that's just the Ari Aster vibe right like sure. everything yes is huge because it's you know grand tragedy yes everything is Um, taking place on a stage even if it's not necessarily right i haven't watched this probably since before midsommar came out Mm. so maybe i'm due for a refresher it's just it's a movie that gets talked about so i know much i know it's just like do i really need to even see it if people won't stop talking about it understandable and yet i couldn't i couldn't in good conscience leave it off of my list because I am such I am such a fan of it. Like I, for as much as I want to sort of pretend that I'm, you know, better than those people, I'm not. <laughs> I am well, ultimately. I, I also feel the, m- more goodwill for the movie now, even though it's a movie that I like mm-hmm. um, uh, quite a bit. I feel I feel even more in defense of this movie now after being very uh, Whoopi Goldberg okay after Bo is afraid afraid. sure 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 um uh so yeah okay uh the nominees that year 2018 best actress um quite famous because i've watched this clip eight billion times uh olivia coleman wins for the favorite uh was nominated against yalitza aparicio for roma glenn close for the wife uh, Lady Gaga for A Star is Born, and Melissa McCarthy for Can You Ever Forgive Me. Um, Melissa McCarthy's probably my winner that year if I'm casting a vote. What a wonderful performance. Obviously, she stays. Obviously, Lady Gaga stays for A Star is Born. 
love Yelitsa Aparizio in, in Roma, love Olivia Coleman in The Favorite. Even if I didn't think The Wife was kind of a subpar movie, I think Process of Elimination sort of damns Glenn Close in this anyway to, to getting uh, booted off of this list, just because I think the other four performances are quite good, and um, I don't think, uh, much as I like Glenn Close a lot, I don't think she can compete. Much as I feel like I would have been fine with Glenn Close winning this Oscar. I, I'm glad that he, that Olivia Coleman has an Oscar. I'm glad that she won for that performance. I still if think if Olivia Coleman hadn't won for that performance, she would have been undeniably the winner for The Lost Daughter. I think that's true, and I think then Glenn Close doesn't get nominated for um, Hillbilly Elegy, and maybe the Smellogy. Um, uh, maybe things are better in the world. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Uh, but then Glenn Close doesn't do the butt on uh, on the Oscar telecast. So truly, maybe <laughs> things all worked out the way they were supposed to. Who knows? Maybe she would have. She's a good time gal. She's cool. Maybe. It's possible. It's all possible. All right. Lest listeners say that I am mean, I am going to say absolutely nothing about this boot. Um, <laughs> however, I will say... Also back to our rules, which it feels like it naturally becomes more of a conversation as the as these uh, snubs have gone on, as yeah. the list nears its end. If we're talking Best Actress in 2018, Tony Collette is not the one that I'm pulling. Who would be yours? Viola Davis and Widows. Well, yes. Also Widows. This is the thing. This is why I tried to limit myself to not doing as many from the last five years. Because We went into Widows, too. It's we like did a whole the... episode on Widows, and I love Widows. I think my bona fides for Widows are We're never going to well stop established. talking about Widows. Yeah. All right. Uh, continue. Chris, we only have a small handful of snubs left. What are we going to do? We're already running out of... We're getting there. Uh, uh, We're getting there. Very deserving uh, snubs. So, Chris, who do you have next? Well... On nous envoie des vues de la maison. Vous êtes dû rester là un bon moment. La cassette fait plus de deux heures. When we first came up with this concept for this May mini series, among the first things that came to my mind was this snub from the foreign language film category in 2005, now known as Best International Feature. Uh, Michael Hanukkah's ca- uh, cachet. I think it is his best movie i mean weird to say his masterpiece because he uh mostly just makes those um (laughs) and this is like part of the reason why this does feel like a snub it is i hate using the word bureaucracy but there is no perfect system right for this category in terms of getting things but this is a movie that got uniquely screwed because it was disqualified as the Austrian submission. Michael Hanukkah is Austrian. Yes. And because the movie is in French, which was deemed not the national language of Austria, it's not the it is yes. not uh eligible because of that. And there's also a history around this time of, well, what country can submit something if it's like co-productions across multiple countries? Is there a question of what language is used in the movie? 
like the decision to say what the national language of something is whereas like it's movies have been screwed before because like the majority of people speak english in countries so it's like what is the national language of some of these countries a lot of stupid shit yeah that prevents movies from getting their due and cachet i think is one of the most uh a movie that should have been on uh, like the global platform of the Oscars. It is incredibly well made. It deals with a family played by Daniel Otu and um, Juliette Binoche who are getting these suspicious videos sent to them of someone recording outside of their home and sending it to them. And then you get into the father's, uh, backstory of his childhood and it raises a lot of questions you know in terms of a lot of the relationship with you know media that we would continue to have yeah immigration yep um in a lot of complexity and asks i think darker questions and it i think it says a very damning thing about especially eurocentric white people and our relationship to the other and uh self-perceived imperviousness that uh the movie takes to almost a a horror film aspect you know the watching these sequences of the filmed video and Mm. maybe subverting that. And sometimes are we meant to be the person behind the camera? There are so many times in this movie where you're watching something and you're, you know, you assume you're just watching a movie and then you turn out, you're watching a video inside of a movie. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Hanukkah is a very, um, impish filmmaker. Sometimes he can be very sort of like, I got you. You know what I mean? Like he's, I think he enjoys um, playing tricks on the audience in that way. I think he enjoys mm-hmm. sort of provoking the audience in that way. And it's a movie that really, um, he gets a lot of enjoyment out of that. As you, And as you're like, kind of your eyes wandering the image that you're watching in stasis and like sometimes major activity, like huge plot driving things are happening somewhere in the frame of what you're seeing, but you don't know where, and maybe you miss it. Yeah. And also what does that say about what the movie is doing thematically? Yeah. It, It is a real, uh, troubling, but not in the way that like there is. Yeah. Like it's problematic or something, a very troubling, disquieting movie. Yeah. Um, and hugely celebrated by bullshit. Yeah. Hugely celebrated in its year. Like for as much as it got right. screwed over by the Oscars. And uh, I think kind of the poster child for why a lot of those rules didn't work. And like, there's no perfect system to be able to do this category, you know, there, right. or at least not one that I've ever seen suggested that, you know, solves some of its problems. But um so in this year, the uh, TIFF Audience Award winner Sotsi wins the category. Also nominated are Don't Tell, Joya Noel, Paradise Now, and Sophie Scholl. A lot of these movies, I think, have good things going for them, even if I don't think they're overall good, like Paradise Now or Don't Tell. Um, Sophie Scholl, I actually 
was kind of riveted by, even yeah. though it's, you know, pretty straightforward. Sure. Uh, the one I would boot is Joyo Noel. It is, I mean, it asks Diane Kruger to lip sync. <laughs> it's, it, it's very straight down the middle, you know. Sure. It, it checks a lot of Oscar boxes that it's like, well, of course it's nominated, even if it's not yeah. very exciting or good. Yeah. It's World War Two. It's, you know, during the armistice when all of the battling sides came together for Christmas, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. All right. Didn't love it. Uh-oh, Chris. Who's approaching is it, now? It, is it time for the pies? I think it's time. I think the strawberry pies are uh, approaching. And yet another mysterious figure in a red dress. Wielding a shotgun and a strawberry pie. This is too much. This is uh, a shotgun, a strawberry pie, uh, some incredible high heels, and... Uh, and a veil. And a veil. Who could it be this time? Oh my goodness, it's Christina Tucker! Oh my god! Let's take a call. All right. Chris and Joe, thank you so much for calling on me in this moment to submit a snub that I hold dear to my heart. And I know before I say this that I know what I'm going to hear from the fans, the listeners, the Garys, if you will, is boo, Christina. This is recency bias. Go a little deeper. Pull further. And to them, I say no. Because when we as a nation decided not to give Jennifer Lynn Lopez an Oscar nomination for her outstanding work in the film Hustlers. We lied to ourselves and we lied to her. And I think that's really the biggest mistake of all because had she been nominated, we could be living in a world where she's in better movies, not in a movie called Mother, where she's some sort of assassin, not in a movie with Josh Duhamel, we could have had better for her. Um, I would also, it also feels like a very easy switch, right? Because we've got Scarlett Johansson famously in these Oscars twice to take her out of supporting. Though I think the correct action would also be taking Margot Roby out. She could go. But I think the easiest sub Scarlett for J-Lo and then, and I'm sorry to Laura Dern, Give the Oscar to Florence Pugh. She deserved it. Was that two in one? Am I too crazy for you? XOXO, Gossip Girl, Christina. Just Christina, not a Gossip Girl. Fantastic. Fantastic. Absolutely. This is this is the type of discourse that we should be bringing to the Strawberry Social. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Anyone claiming recency bias, I also say shame on you. This, I mean... Truly, it, the thing is, and maybe we'll be getting into uh, th- this discussion again uh, on an upcoming episode. Who knows? Um, it did actually feel like a snub. It did actually feel like they don't like Jennifer Lopez. And they don't like this movie they perceive to just be about strippers. And Rude is what it was. And we it should was say rude. that because it is... One of the performances of the past decade. Go back and listen to our episode on Hustlers. We talk a lot about it. One Christina, of the best. Thank you for saying for speaking the truth. Christina and, Tucker, you know, come into our fur, is what we say. <laughs> <laughs> come I sit mean, with us on this rooftop. I think I think booting ScarJo is fair. 
too. I think so too. You know, you know she had she, she had a nomination. Her marriage story nomination. Totally, absolutely. And also uh, absent to win for Jennifer Lopez. I also said we should have voted for Florence Pugh to win. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm not here for uh, Laura Dern denigration for her performance in Marriage Story, a truly no. comedic performance that doesn't the, the kind of which does not win enough um, in movies is what I will say. So. Uh, I'm very, very good with that win, but Jennifer Lopez was was the cream of that crop that year and was uh, unfortunately rudely snubbed. So I'm glad we can make that correction here. Um, and I am not besmirching Laura Dern either. I think that's a good performance, though. Does she have the smallest feet in her family? I think not. <laughs> Joe, I believe you have we're we're coming home stretch y'all home stretch home stretch two picks left a piece all right yes what's gonna happen to you (laughs) nothing too bad but i gotta tell you sammy and i know things really didn't work out too well this time terry but it's really good to know wherever i am and whatever stupid shit i'm doing that you're back at my home rooting for me It's all going to be all right, Sammy. Comparatively. This is a selection which almost made my number one Oscar snub of all time. It is one that I most fervently uh, fired up about. Uh, How did this miss a nomination to 2000 Best Actor? It's Mark Ruffalo and You Can Count on Me. One of my favorite movies of all time and a true two-hander in terms of Laura Linney's nominated for Best Actress that year, and rightly so. Uh, uh, probably my vote to win that year in a very strong category. Um, I'm, it's, it's just one of the special performances for me. But it's a performance that works so well in tandem with Mark Ruffalo, who plays Terry, her brother. And everything that is so special about You Can Count on Me comes from that brother-sister relationship. Obviously, there are other relationships in the movie. You know, her son uh, uh, grows close to Terry, her son played by Rory Culkin, very, very little, little baby boy Rory Culkin. Um, uh, her, she's having the affair with her boss, uh, Matthew Broderick. But, like, You Can Count on Me boils down to Sammy and Terry and their relationship with each other. And they're such well-drawn characters by Kenneth Lonergan, the screenwriter and director, but they're also performed so indelibly by these two actors. And Ruffalo, this is his big sort of breakthrough role, and he's so stubborn and headstrong, but also like clearly vulnerable and clearly, you know, sort of uh, wounded this, you know, you can, there are these, you know, siblings who grew up and they only had each other because their parents died when they were very young. And he's dependent on Sammy. He really wants her approval, but he's also, you know, rebellious against her. She's sort of the authority figure in his life and he wants to do his own thing. And he really, really, really can't stand being back in his hometown where he constantly feels judged by other people and has these probably, you know, wounds from being probably a bad kid in high school and all this sort of stuff. And um, their scenes together are perfect. And his scenes with Rory Culkin are perfect. And it's just shocking to me that 
And I know that we treat sort of up-and-coming breakthrough actors differently than we do actresses. And, um, you know, I think the, the sort of the ingenue actress gets a lot more play with the Oscars than does the, you know, uh, out-of-nowhere young actor, right? We sort of have actors uh, prove themselves a little bit more. But um, I don't know how you can nominate one without the other. I think this this should have been an easily easy sort of actor and actress double for these two. He was the runner-up at National Society of Film Critics that year, where he lost to Javier Bardem for uh, Before Night Falls. He also lost to Javier Bardem at the Independent Spirit Awards that year. So I wonder when they were both in... Um, uh, collateral several years later if uh, <laughs> if ruffalo uh, reminded uh, javier or javier reminded ruffalo of that fact um i know i am prob i can't imagine you're as big of a you can count on me fan as i am because i can't imagine how are you kidding would me be. but i know that you are a fan of this movie and i'm a massive fan of this movie it's so wonderful uh, I've seen it so Listen, many times. Listen, I, w- I, I will break the pool time. stick over my knee and we can fight to the death over <laughs> who is the bigger you can count on me fan because I will win. But uh, I love this choice. Uh, thank you. Thank you for uh, for supporting me. Laura Linney also loves this choice because she's she would talk about how she's like, I appreciate all of this happening for me, but I don't understand why it's not happening for my co-star Mike Ruffalo. Especially because like he would become such an Oscar favorite later and get, you know, multiple nominations uh, going forward. He's a three-time nominee now. And anyway, so the nominees that year, Russell Crowe wins for Gladiator um, probably a year before the Academy. Uh, if they would have, I think if the Academy had known that A Beautiful Mind was coming the next year, they would have probably held off because uh, they really loved the beautiful mind and they almost gave it to him two years in a row. And, but anyway, he beats out Javier Bardem for before night falls, Tom Hanks for Castaway, who maybe wins if he's not already a two time Oscar winner, sort of a Jodie Foster and Nell situation there. Uh, Ed Harris for Pollock and then Jeffrey Rush for Quills. Um, I'm not a huge gladiator fan, but I think Russell Crowe getting nominated for that, I don't know about winning, but I think Russell Crowe getting nominated for that movie is probably correct. He brings a lot of movie star charisma to that. I think a lot of the reason The Gladiator works is because of Russell Crowe at the center of it. Love Hanks and Castaway. Love Castaway, just in general. What a great movie. Um, Ed Harris is so unlikable in Pollock that I find <laughs> it's just so impressive. Um just what a son of a bitch <laughs> he is in that movie. Um, I like Javier Bardem in Before Night Falls. That was a big uh, breakthrough for him. I'm not as big of a fan of Quills. I know you've talked earlier in this series about liking Quills. Quills is fun. Um, I'm not super into it. Uh, I think Jeffrey Rush, I think the assignment is to sort of go over the top, but he goes over the top in that very Jeffrey Rush way of his. I do think that's the one I'm booting, though, out of this category is Jeffrey Rush for Quills. And... I think Ruffalo makes. I think Ruffalo's probably my winner that year of all of these guys, um, but uh, at the very least deserved a nomination. All right, Chris. All right, your penultimate. My penultimate. Piece of sky I stepped 
a moment thought about this as my biggest of all time, but I have a very clear uh, winner of that distinction. Talking about Best Director of 1983, Barbara Streisand for Yentl. Had to know this was coming. You had, had to, to know, know this. Yeah, I mean, first of all, who loves Yentl? Uh, uh, again, horny cinema. <laughs> yeah. Um. Y- this I feel like when we talk about Barbara Streisand not getting Best Director nominations, people more so talk about Prince of Tides, I think because Prince of Tides seemed like an even bigger snub because it was the second time it happened. And it had a ton of overall nominations. And it had a Best Picture nomination, too. Yeah. Yentl did not, but Yentl got multiple Oscar it did. nominations. It did. It is so fucking good such a fucking personal story and when you i feel like it's the even bigger snub because i i think it shows more distinctly who streisand is as a director Mm -hmm. um and you know where she's coming from as a storyteller and i i think it's just a better movie than prince of tides and when you like you read some of the press around the time of this movie. It just reeks of such sexism and anti-Semitism for this, you know, distinctly Jewish story. And, sure. you know, people treating this movie like it's some type of vanity project. Right. And it's like, you could, sure, maybe it could, but, like, we don't go to the movies to see people be modest. We don't. Like, right. it, I mean, I think it's... For someone who does not consider themselves very religious, I think it's a very, you know, profound to me in the type of spiritual awakening that it is uh, trying to exemplify. Uh, This is a queer legend movie. Like, there is so much to be said about this movie in terms of sexuality, in terms of gender expression, in terms of, you know, gender euphoria. and it's also a really good musical. Like, I feel like it gets a lot of shit for all of the songs are Yentl's, and that gets lumped into the way people perceive Streisand. But sure. also, when you look at the narrative, it makes absolute fucking sense that all of the songs are just in the protagonist's head, basically, you know. <laughs> the original Roxy Heart of our time. <laughs> Yentl. <laughs> Yentl. Um... And it has maybe one of my like top five favorite finale songs ever. Um, I've talked a lot about Cynthia Revo performing a piece of Sky uh, as among my favorites. Yeah, it. I don't know. I think she also Streisand also pulls off what so few, especially modern musicals, uh, are able to achieve in that the grandeur and the intimacy of the story are given yeah. equal skill and attention. Um, yeah. And she's able to pull off, you know, these small intimate character internal moments and then make this kind of grand sweeping story at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yentl fucking rules. <laughs> I love Yentl. Um, I love this choice. What are... She was not too old for Yentl. <laughs> she was too old for Yentl. Um, uh, I love that moment in and out. Okay, uh, the nominees in 1983 for best director, which uh, the year, the by the way, Barbara nominees. won the Golden Globe that year. Yes, yes. Um, James L. Brooks wins for Terms of Endearment. 
Bruce Beresford for Tender Mercies, Ingmar Bergman for Fanny and Alexander, Mike Nichols for Silkwood, and Peter Yates for The Dresser. I think this is actually a pretty good lineup. Sure. I I think that, you know, a few of them are not at the level of uh, what Yentl achieves, sure. notably Bruce Beresford and Peter Yates, though I think The Dresser is a lot of fun. I've never seen um, The Dresser, but I've heard good things about it. I understand why people would hate it, but I also understand why people love it. I kind of fell somewhat in the middle, though I was impressed by what Peter Yates brings to the material and what he draws out of it. Uh, my boot is Bruce Beresford uh, for Tender Mercies, a movie that has some good stuff in there. Obviously, Robert Duvall wins uh, his acting Oscar for that movie. Um, it also has Betty Buckley on a break from Cats. <laughs> nice. Ripping into the, I believe it was nominated for original song, uh, Over You, which, like, my god, Pull up that clip of Betty Buckley going full country western singer and then doing this kind of torch ballad. It's fucking incredible. We're, uh, just cut that scene into Yentl somehow. Um, uh, it was, by the way, a, it was a, a original song nominee alongside two and songs she did for Yentl. Perform it on the ceremony, I think, because she'd either gone back to Cats or something. Um, yeah, uh, the Bruce Beresford is uh, my boot. All due respect to uh, Mr. Beresford. Very good. All right, Chris. So here's what's interesting and funny as we move into the number one Oscar snub of all time is we came up with these lists completely independently of each other. We went in our separate corners. We came up in our list. We came back together. And lo and behold, genuinely, shockingly to the both of us, we both had the same choice for number one snub of all time. And what else could be a bigger snub than this? The reaction is... that I had when I saw that this was your number one snub and mine, it was absolutely completely perfect. We're going to play a clip for you in a second, and you'll understand as soon as we play the clip why we had to choose it as our number one Oscar snub of all time. Um, very storied, very notorious, very beloved. That's the thing. It was uh, such a, a no-brainer. Intrinsic part of culture for all people. It was. It's the obvious choice, but we had to go for it, and it, and and we Sometimes couldn't. The not. obvious is true. All There's right, so we're gonna we're gonna play you a clip, and then we'll talk about our number one choice. We're kidding. kidding. You guys were kidding. Much as we love, by the way, much as we absolutely legitimately love Hey Baby Doll from uh, this had Oscar Buzz certified selection, Danny Collins. Uh, We're playing a little joke on you. Um, But what if. The great existential question Hey Baby Doll, what's going on? What's going on, indeed. Um, Sometimes I wake up in the morning and I just look in the mirror and I take a deep look into my soul and say, hey, baby doll, what is going on? We couldn't not mention hey, baby doll. At the very least, we couldn't not mention it. But no, that is not our number one. We do have two distinct choices for number one Oscar snub of all time. Um, 
Mine was, was pretty clear for me. So mine I was in turmoil for a while. I will say, before Oliver uh, came in with his selection of Greta Gerwig for Francis Ha, Francis Ha for Best Picture was my choice for number one snub of all time. But I, again, <laughs> uh, uh, chose to spread the wealth. Um, it's not a joke. It was actually my choice. Uh, and, and I would have been happy to stand by it. But Oliver jumped in. All right. So instead, I am choosing... Make them laugh. Don't you know everyone wants to laugh? <laughs> my dad said, Be an actor, my son. But be a comical one. They'll be standing in lines for those old honky tonk monkey shines. Or you could study Shakespeare and be quite elite. And you could charm the critics and have nothing to eat. Just slip on a banana peel, the world's at your feet. Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh. This one does feel no. This is not. I'm nobody's joking this time. This does feel like um, an obvious one, but one I couldn't not recognize as it's one of the more puzzling, baffling. You know, you look back and you're like, why, uh, why did this not happen? We're going all the way back to 1952. Best Picture. It's singing in the rain, ladies and gentlemen. Um, what was happening in 1952, Chris? That it's not like it took, it's not like Singing in the Rain was one of these things that got reclaimed late in, you know, late in the game. It's not like it took until like the 70s or something like that for people to realize that Singing in the Rain was this, you know, great beloved hit or whatever. It didn't feel like, you know, there wasn't this big controversy around it or whatever. There wasn't anything. It just was somehow overlooked for five other nominees. It only got two nominations in total. It got nominated for Gene Hagen for Supporting Actress as Lena Lamont. Rightly so. Yes, Tremendously correct. funny performance. <laughs> um, and then original score. And then uh, otherwise, no. Uh, uh, nothing for picture, nothing for directors uh, Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly, nothing for Debbie Reynolds or Donald O'Connor. Um, it's just, it's surprising. I know the songs were not largely not original right there was some they were yes uh, but regardless um uh, it was a golden globe nominee it lost to with a song in my heart it was a bafta nominee among 18 nominees for best film not from uh england essentially Um, go off bafta uh, 18 nominees that included not only singing in the rain but like rashomon and a streetcar named desire and the african queen so like it was there was a there was some competition there for sure um but anyway, just in general, uh, Singing in the Rain was not recognized as this sort of uh, uh, no-brainer, best movie of the year, a cinematic classic by then, which is, again, it's puzzling. I guess I guess you could maybe say that it's because it da- takes something of a dim look at Hollywood, but it does so in the guise of something that celebrates Hollywood too, right? That celebrates the idea of you know, making motion pictures and making ultimately these people are, are you know, uh, artists and entertainers and and Gene Kelly uh, and Debbie Reynolds have this, you know, very wonderful romance. Donald O'Connor is, as I said the last time I saw uh, St- uh, Singing in the Rain on the big screen, Donald O'Connor giving one of the great 
um, sublimated gay longing performances of all time where it's just like, <laughs> I'm in love with my best friend. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to dance so hard that I like run up onto the, the walls. You know what I mean? Like, it's like <laughs> that's what's going to happen um, in this, in this performance right here. Um, I don't know. I think it's like, it's largely regarded as one of the great musicals and great films of all time. And it's just, it's so strange to go to look back and think well obviously who, what did that lose to in this in the best picture race and it's like well it wasn't even nominated and it's like what the hell so <laughs> uh what do you have to say about singing in the rain my friend i think some of it is just like the relationship with it's so weird the the musicals that have endured and stand out so much uh for their greatness today and have been highly influential it's Oscar's relationship with musicals have always been so strange. Sure. Like I, uh, in a previous episode, called out uh, "Gentlemen Prefer Blondes," which had no nominations, yeah. which is crazy. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe it's not till the '60s when you get stuff like a sound of the sound of music and My Fair Lady Oliver. and Oliver and and stuff like that. But when even we- like Oliver is one that one Best Picture and like, do people really? talk about Oliver all that no. much. I mean, I know that Oliver has its fans in musical theater, but as a film... Isn't Oliver at City Center, like, right now? Isn't that happening, yes. like, uh, yes. at Encores? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Interesting. I'd rather pluck my own eyes than <laughs> see a production of Oliver, personally. Um, um, but... Yeah. But no, you're not wrong. I think I think maybe in the 1950s. Although, when was Gigi... Uh, Best Picture winner. That was in the 50s, the I imagine. Right? So it's like the, it? okay. the trend is in the 60s that yeah. musicals did sure. well. Big, giant, splashy musicals. Sure. But So this was maybe a little bit before its time. Then. But it's just, it's always like the ones that do land with them. Yeah. Like, I think of even like White Christmas, which I'm sure White Christmas is just seen as fluff at the time. Sure, but. sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Anyway, so the nominees that year, this is the year that The Greatest Show on Earth wins, the Cecil B. DeMille, um, more is more uh, uh, epic uh, <laughs> Greatest Show on Earth. Also nominated were uh, High Noon, Ivanhoe, Moulin Rouge, the John Houston Moulin Rouge, and then John Ford's The Quiet Man. Um, Moulin Rouge, no punctuation. Right. Yeah. Moulin Rouge, uh, full stop. Not even full stop. There's nothing. Um, what are what are your thoughts on this this Best Picture lineup, Chris? I haven't seen The Greatest Show on Earth, but it's one that I've seen bandied around by people as, like, some of the worst Best Picture winners yes. of all time. Yes. Um, it is. Oh, really? You, it's, well, you I've not seen all of them. So, like, I, I, okay. I can't, you know, but it's 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 a lot of sound and fear. You know, and again, I am not a Cecil B. DeMille hater. I kicked off this episode raving about the Ten Commandments. So, like, I like... Cecil B. DeMille going uh, big, but Greatest Show on Earth falls short of that, I think, for sure. Um, Ivanhoe I've not seen, but that's supposed to be this sort of, again, that was another big movie of that year. This was this, um, uh, whatever, old England Knights of the, not Knights of the Round Table, but like uh, Richard the Lionheart era kind of stuff. And um, Elizabeth Taylor is in that one, I want to say. Um but anyway, High Noon, obviously, this, you know, celebrated uh, Western, which was, I think, like, hugely critically lauded at the time. Uh, the Quiet Man is a little bit of an atypical uh, film for John Ford in terms of, like, uh, you know, a Western that that sort of goes in some interesting directions. And then I've not seen John Huston's Moulin Rouge. 
so I can't say Neither have I, but I've also not heard great things about it. So anyway, I think just for the historical record of it all, I'm going to uh, house down boots this one and get rid of Greatest Show on Earth, and we'll slot in Singing in the Rain, and we'll pretend that that won Best Picture that year, and everything will make sense once again. And Listen, it's your greatest Oscar snub of all time. You are allowed to make your boot be petty. <laughs> it's true. Exactly. All right. So that's my number one uh, snub of all time. Chris, what is yours? The only reason why you're here, you can make their team win. If their team wins, these schools get a lot of money. This whole thing is revolving around money. So mine was pretty clear to me early on that this is the greatest Oscar snub of all time, not just for creative reasons, but also just for the simple fact of I can't think of other Oscar snubs that were so egregious, that made so much headlines, that it actually resulted in the it, it resulted in changes in the way the category would be nominated moving forward. I'm talking about none other than 1994 Best Documentary Feature for Steve James's Hoop Dreams. So, Hoop Dreams failed to make an eligibility list, and Roger Ebert especially, who was a huge proponent of this movie uh, at the time, uh, and uh, I think he maybe put, made it his best of the decade, best movie of the decade, if I'm remembering correctly. I remember that at least both Siskel and Ebert had it as their number one movie of 1994. Both of them, and they made somewhat of a hullabaloo about it being yes on the uh, I think just the short list for it. It didn't make it, mm-hmm. and that ultimately re- uh, you know pushed it to by the editors to nominate the movie for best editing. Is it still the only documentary nominated in best film editing Ooh, ever? I would have to scour that category, but I can't think of anything else off of the top of my head. Quite possibly. Yeah. Um, so Which is surprising brings- because you would think that of all the categories for, you know, documentaries to get additional nominations in, editing would be a, a, a natural one, but you know, who knows? The the documentary for people who haven't seen it, and you absolutely have to, it is uh, American Masterpiece. It centers around uh, several uh, kids in Chicago who are attempting to get through uh, playing basketball, whether in they're recruited for private schools, they're doing it at public schools, etc., trying to basically land uh, college deals as well. And the movie, in somewhat of like a Frederick Wiseman way, goes through the whole system of what this is like. You deal with these really uh, shitty, <laughs> evil like recruiters and the manipulations that they go through. You get the administration, both within the schools and on the sports teams, that are, you know, getting these students in. But you also get a lot of detail about their personal lives and their family lives and what their families are going through and their struggles with finances, etc. Um, and the kids' education as well, just to get these young athletes ahead. And it becomes this very, very intimate look at, you know, the <laughs> sports uh, industrial complex Indeed. within America. And yeah. 
I think, you know, I'm obviously not a sports person. Sure. <laughs> you know, when I see these scenes in this movie that's, you know, 30 years old and I yeah. see the way that these kids are manipulated by like recruiters and stuff, I'm sure. like, that man is evil. Sure. That man is evil. He is destroying this child's life. And, uh, I, it, it is, it, it's, I mean, it's one of the greatest American movies ever made, period. And the kind of out, roar about the about this movie not making the uh shortlist exposed how the documentary branch was voting for these movies that's the thing which is insane and belittling to these artists basically they're going to screening rooms and they're going to be screening all of these documentaries for uh people in the audience and apparently the documentary branch or the people voting on Best Documentary had the ability to, like, wave a flashlight at the screen if they wanted to stop watching the movie. And if they get, like, a majority or a certain number of lights, they stop the screening and they move on to the next movie. And it Hoop Dreams, which is three hours long, and it does take time to kind of snowball and reveal what it is. Yeah. You know, it's a three hour long movie and it was exposed that they stopped the screening of the movie through this method 20 minutes into it, which is like you don't even get into the sports part of it. So it's like they didn't see the art in it, didn't see the interest in the story as you're just seeing these young black men's lives. So it's like, oh, so you don't see that this is a valuable story to be telling and it got exposed and they obviously no longer vote that way. Well, and um, I would also imagine that by the time they had gotten to the screenings, there had been some sort of advanced praise for Hoop Dreams. And so... It had won at Sundance. You yeah. should you should have already been aware that, like, this is something that we owe our attention to and we owe a little bit more leeway, even, even under this dumb system with the flashlights. It was also a hit movie. It right. made several million dollars at a time when that didn't happen to documentaries. And now that's kind of the standard. Like yeah. <clears throat> movies that are like the hit documentary movies are kind of the ones that do get ahead do, with yes. Oscars yeah, yeah, yeah. in yeah. large ways. Like Fire of Love last year made a million dollars at a time when movies were struggling to make a million dollars, let alone documentary movies. Um, so like it's incredibly formative just for like the American movie going public's relationship with documentaries and like a movie that's made the financial viability and success of documentaries a possibility. Also, you know, set aside Steve James is like a major force in the art form. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Through, justified and well uh you know publicized uh anger over how this category was voted for and what it probably exposed about that branch um and their biases uh like this is kind of the no-brainer for me i can't think of another snub that changed the voting practice for a category which like when you hear about how they do that can you imagine doing that for like a best picture <laughs> like oh they voted best picture that way like yeah let me flash a light on the screen it's saying i don't it's watch hostile it's un. it's so unnecessarily hostile to cinema right you know what i mean like right. not to get like highfalutin about it but like come on 
It's and also granted, Hoop Dreams is a three-hour movie, but like it's riveting the entire time, yeah. and it's incredibly emotional the entire time. But like, like I mentioned at the top of this episode, documentary features weren't really even features at that time. Sure. Like I, I couldn't find anything when I looked at what at that time the running time had to be. Sure, but like, you know, they're, yeah, they're. So it's like you can't sit and watch all of this. Yeah, this if one you can't sit and watch all of it. Why are you voting? This one's Not a, that I think you have to watch everything, but no, I know this one's a great choice for number one though. It's such a sort of infamous stain on the Oscars. It's you know, it's ideal. I think I think it's a really good choice for your number one. I'm glad you made it. Yeah, Chris, we did it. We did it. A hundred. We did it. A hundred plus snubs amazing again we don't know math um we don't care we fl- we shine our flashlight at math we say go away math. <laughs> trigonometry flashlight, flashlight, flashlight. <laughs> um let's talk about some 100 years 100 snubs 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 there's a lot because we know that we the left. listeners think that we have some listen i think that we have some i we we, we both know how long our our uh, semi-final lists were there are so many that we didn't get to i'm not kidding about maybe revisiting this as a future mini series <laughs> uh i could think i think we could easily put together a list of 100 more so you never know um uh or maybe a bonus something along the line who knows who knows what we could do so um yeah listeners get back at us who are your choices for snubs that we didn't include uh, feel free, as always, to compliment the ones that we did choose, because uh, <laughs> we will humbly take that on. But yes, talk to us about uh, snubs that uh, that we didn't include. We obviously um, had way, way more than we could fit into a list of 100, but um, we also uh, went long on all of these episodes, so I don't know <laughs> if we could have crammed in many more than we already did. What are some that you feel might be missing or that were hard for you to cut? I um, Some of my sort of uh, cutting room floor ones included, I th- uh, Kirsten Dunst for Bachelorette was definitely among them for me. Uh, Diane Warren uh, for You Haven't Seen the Last of Me, the original song from Burlesque, which was another. Burlesque was also uh, represented by Oliver in the, this. Um, <laughs> I had Annihilation on my long list for sound. I had um, the great, wonderful uh, filmmaker Stephen Cohn for his original screenplay for Princess Sid and also his original screenplay for The Wise Kids. Um, there was a lot. There was a lot of, of really good choices on here. As I said, Tony Collette could have easily shown up for Velvet Goldmine instead of Hereditary. Um Muriel's wedding. Muriel's wedding. What about you? What were your? Uh... I'd mentioned I'd uh, wanted to get more Mike Lee performers in there. Sally Hawkins for Happy Go Lucky mm-hmm. was just to me such a like big obvious snub that I tried to get her in there. Yeah. Uh, Michael Stuhlbarg for uh, Call Me by Your Name and A Serious Man. Yeah. I had a lot of uh, costume nominees. I didn't include Down with Love having recently. Uh, discussed that on the um, B-sides. Yeah. And uh, uh, I had, well, I mentioned Fantastic Mr. Fox in costuming. Mm-hmm. I'd had Widows somewhere on the long list. That 
that and a few other things were, um, you know, we had episodes on, so it was easier to cut them out. Yeah. Um, I mentioned a makeup one I almost did. I almost did Videodrome for Best Makeup because in that year there was no award given, but it was tough to get that to a spot when it was Rick Baker and the man has like seven Oscars. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was like, well, yeah. he did fine. He did fine. Yeah. Um, I really, really, my gay ass wanted to put Prisoner from the Eyes of Laura Mars in here. That was a close one. Yep. It was a close one. It would have been a way to double get Barbara in there because she sings it. She didn't write the song. But so she sings she it. She wouldn't have been the nominee. Yeah. Um, uh, you say I Prisoner had... and I have to remind you that it is not just Prisoner. It is Prisoner parentheses love theme from Eyes of Laura Mars. So, right. Um, a love theme. I love the era of Eyes love of themes. Bring them back. Yeah. God, I love that that horrible movie. It's <laughs> stupid It's movie. a great movie. I love that movie. Yeah. I had some other international features and documentaries that I wanted to include, um, like Grey Gardens, which I think is incredibly formative for the art form and yeah. was yeah. like sneered at in its time. Mm-hmm. Also, BPM, a recent example of uh, a movie that people thought would be saved for an executive yes. list in that category and yep. the, or the executive committee. Um if I, I had, also really wanted. I was going to say, yeah. if I had done more recent ones, I probably would have thrown in somebody like Mike Feist for uh, West Side Story, who mm. I really, really love. One of my very last cuts was Margaret Hamilton for The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Which, like, yes, of course, but also, like, history has put her sure. on the mantle for yes. that. So it's like, yeah. what would an Oscar nomination do to add to that legend at this point? Yeah. Um, and what's some other ones that I thought of? Again, genuinely, genuinely, uh, we can we can save some of these in the holster for a future episode of something. I genuinely sure. think we can. Um, but yeah, I think the the winnowing down process. We had several meetings <laughs> for winnowing down. We definitely <laughs> took some care with this, so uh, this was not a list that was arrived at willy nilly. Uh, should I run down this final part, uh, part five, uh, the snubs? That we have selected this year, and then we will uh, bid our listeners adieu for another main. Mini-series. Oh, I just th- I just thought of the major one that I tried to get in there, but couldn't get it in for like a single performance. Was Cary Grant, obviously? Sure, uh, yes. Wanting to get Cary Grant in there. Um, yes, give us that list. Give us that list. All right, uh, part five: one hundred years, one hundred snubs. We have uh, honored. Anne Baxter, The Ten Commandments, Best Supporting Actress, 1956, Paris is Burning, Best Documentary Feature, 1991, John Goodman, Barton Fink, Best Supporting Actor, 1991, New York, New York, from New York, New York, Best Original Song, 1977, Rick Baker, Gene Ann Black, Bill Sturgeon, Best Makeup for The Ring, 2002, Marlene Stewart for Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, Best Costume Design of 1995. Aaron Sorkin for The American President, Best Original Screenplay of 1995. Danny Elfman, Edward Scissorhands, Best Original Score, 1990. Henry Selleck, Best Art Direction, Coraline, 2009. Pam Greer for Jackie Brown, Best Actress, 1997. Reginald Morris for Black Christmas, Best Cinematography of 1974. The Talented Mr. Ripley, Producers to be Determined, Best Picture, 1999. Uh, Steven Spielberg, AI Artificial Intelligence, Best Director, 2001. Nicole Kidman, Eyes Wide Shut, Best Actress, 1999. Cachet, Best Foreign Language Film, 2005. Mark Ruffalo, You Can Count On Me, Best Actor, 2000. 
Barbara Streisand, Yentl, Best Director, 1983, Singing in the Rain, Best Picture, 1952, and Hoop Dreams, Best, Doc- Best Documentary Feature, 1994. We would also like to thank Oliver Sava for bringing Frances Ha, Greta Gerwig, Best Actress of 2013, Bobby Finger for bringing I Can Do Bad All By Myself from I Can Do Bad All By Myself, Best Original Song of 2009, and Christina Tucker bringing us Jennifer Lopez for Hustlers, Best Supporting Actress 2019. That's the list, Chris. That is wow. the snubs. Uh, wowie, wowie. Wowie, we wowie, indeed. did it. We did it. We ta- We celebrated movies. We celebrated America. movies. We celebrated American snubs is what we did. We would like to thank Jodie Foster and Sally Field and Richard Gere, Trisha Yearwood, Marvin Hamlish. Uh, who else? All God. of our God, all of our guests from our previous episodes. We could not have done this without you. We were so glad to uh, that you uh, uh, sent in your submissions for us. Um, just who else? I mean, the American Film Institute. Why not? Um, Thank you, the American Film Institute, for inventing the list. That's right. Um, that's right. We have ever since they came up with a hundred years, a hundred movies, and we had been given the concept of a list. We have now been able to argue, yes, and uh, compile various lists uh, yes. over time. All right. I mean, that's it, Chris. What else can we say? Uh, uh, Send us uh, we out can with say a thank you to the listeners. We thank uh, you, this, listeners. This, this was for was you. A, yeah, yeah. This hopefully you all enjoyed this. Uh, we appreciate all of your support so much. Uh, we hope this brought you as much joy as it did to us. Indeed. All right, that's our episode, and that's our May mini series. We'll be back next week with standard episodes. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz and on Instagram at thishadoscarbuzz. Joe, where can our listeners find more of you? Twitter and letterboxed at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I am on Twitter and Letterboxd at Crispy File. That's F-E-I-L. We'd like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Bevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get those podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So this is something you maybe could shine a flashlight on with a nice <laughs> review. That's all for this week. We hope you'll be back next week for more... Buzz. buzz. Back to the buzz. Bye. A ticket.